Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. I want to thank you for listening and for sharing the podcast. Please do me a favor and uh, rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. And if you'd like to support this work, please make a donation at gurunishan.com forward slash uncomfortable conversations. As always, at the beginning of every episode, I like to read the intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and other support and therapy as needed, to draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. On today's episode, I want to welcome a guest. Her name is Pritam Hari. Pritam Hari Kar was born in Germany and grew up in Indonesia and Spain of German post-war parents who wanted nothing better than to head out into fresh and new horizons. After being kicked out of her house by her father and stepmom at the age of eight, 19 years old in Malta, where she was studying, she met Yogi Bhajan in 1981 at the age of 21 and fully embraced the ashram lifestyle. 
comforted under Yogi Bhajan's tutelage and guidance at the European Regional Center in Hamburg, Germany. She was the European Regional Secretary from 1981 to 1987, co-organized the annual yoga festival in France, the European Todtrick yoga events, and Yogi Bhajan's visits, as well as she traveled to New Mexico every year during this time frame from 1981 to 1987. In 1986, she was asked um, to join, she was asked by YB to join his staff in Espanola, New Mexico. She declined with much sadness at the time, knowing that she would literally combust if she was there 24 seven. Yogi Bhajan introduced and arranged her marriage to Har Bhajan Singh from South Africa and sent her to quote, develop the area there in 1987. In 1997, Yogi Bhajan sent an African-American Khalsa to South Africa, a Sikh Dharma minister, purportedly to support the mission in South Africa. This teacher was a sex offender addict and seduced women in the name of counseling and moon center healing, people under the banner of Kundalini Yoga, right under their noses at the ashram and on his duty as a minister of Sikh Dharma. They brought this to Yogi Bhajan's attention at solstice two years later in 1999 and ensured the man didn't come back and that he was also not sent onward to another African country, Mozambique, which YB had wanted to do. Apparently, EPS, the Ethics Bureau, was created after this major and tragic scandal and never actually got recognized, reconciled, or resolved. It was said at the time that YB, quote, corrected the, a man who was the offender. However, the abusive transgressions were never conclusively dealt with via counseling or rehabilitation, being left in limbo for two decades beyond the original offenses. At the time, the South African ashram moved on and did the best they could to continue focusing on teaching, growing their community, and sharing the yogic lifestyle. Their son, Hari Bhajan, left for school in India in 1999 at the age of 10. In 2004, when YB passed away, Pritam Hari went into deep grief. During this process, she began to take a serious look at her own spiritual life and mental and emotional health. She noticed that despite a decade of sadhana and so many tantrics and daily yoga, she was a high-functioning depressive with little capacity for happiness, which made her feel flawed and ashamed. At this time, she started very deliberately working with herself to undo her own numbness and pain. She began to feel very different, not chasing elusive goals and keying herself up on a spiritual bypass as a routine way of being. Her relationship with YB came to feel settled and at peace. When the Premka book came out in 2020, she already had some emotional tools for the complexity of it all, the abuses that were being revealed, despite the occasional sense of disassociation or disbelief. She's in a place where she still loves yoga and also holds the voices of the many persons who were harmed in her heart. There continue to be many local discussions around this, and it remains an ongoing topic of transparency within their community. Ritamari, it is truly an honor to see you, to have you here on the podcast, and to have your voice um, coming out into this conversation. Thank you. Likewise. <laughs> I want to say it's actually like equal measure of uh, uncomfortable and comfortable conversation, you know, because, I mean, there is comfort in speaking about this you know yeah, thank, thank you for for saying that because it can be right we can we can go into the uncomfortable and find deep layers of comfort that we didn't even know existed when we run from it absolutely 
So yeah, I feel yeah. you. For listeners that don't know, me and Pritam Hari are geeking out on seeing each other right now because <laughs> I actually went to the South African ashram when I was 19 and I lived um, with her and her budgeon and Hari Bhajan. And um, to see you now after 20 years to be a part of this conversation together um, in the last two years has been um, hmm, full circle and also deeply warming. Just wonderful. Like, so this isn't my story about being there, but I fit in into this story in terms of having do. come to visit you all. And so it's, it's, um, hmm, I had no like idea. You really have a tactile, you know, you, you, you shared, um, viscerally and experientially, you shared so much there, you know, and you know what it's like. So, so, you know, I feel honored to have this conversation with you because you're over there, but you were completely part of it, you know. Yeah, and that my little stint there during this year time frame, you know, the 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 African American you mentioned that got sent there came after me, and so this is a very interesting like pivot that I had no idea for for twenty years after I was there that you faced all these things, and so yeah. it's it's I find that it really represents the complex web that quote our community offers in that we may meet very incredible human beings in all different layers of our experience. Um, that's kind of embedded within a larger institutional experience mm -hmm. and to undo them, to unpack them, you know, the love and the abuse commingled is not an easy reconcile. And your stay there was very incisive and really wonderful. And we connected a lot, you know, and, and your stay there felt very supportive at the time. And, um, you know, it's just lovely to speak with you with actually more, you know, unraveling and looking at your stories. Yeah, and I agree that time of my life was the most freeing time of my existence. I remember it just being such a pivotal point in my growth and development. Um, I don't think Harbhajan ever knew how much it meant to me to be able to live and work overseas and to be able to feel a sense of um, independence on my own, you know, and, and it came through uh, knowing not knowing you, but because you're this three HO ashram in South Africa, it, having been born into this community, it was like, um, it was just so special. It was a part of what's always been special to me about growing up in this, this Dharma is the web of, mm -hmm. of meaningful relationships that, that outweigh the, the, the abuse things that can come mm -hmm. along the way. So that time was special for me too. And so we'll get to that, but Mm -hmm. Whew, your bio. I want to just go back and say, wow. So you're 19, you're you're you get started in Germany in Hamburg, and kind of bring us through this early point where you started really dedicating yourself because the early dedication, say, to the European Yoga Festival. My brother loved the Yoga Festival in Loesch, and everybody had things to say. So I'd love for you to go back to like who you were as you started and kind of like lead us through some of that bio stage so that we really get a sense of how you got in and fully committed to this life. So I think the, the way I grew up was uh, a little bit of like heaven and hell, you know, like I can say my early childhood was like super blissed and very, very magical. And then, you know, just my, my family background just led to my parents making the decision to go back to Germany. And that's when things fell apart and my parents got divorced and, I think both my brother and I were kind of like orphaned in a way because my mom wasn't coping. So, but you know, as a teenager, you kind of 
you seek new horizons and you do what you have to do and you you don't feel it that much because you have this sort of brainstorm that says i can call and after matric i went to malta and i had a fallout with my dad i thought it was something relatively minor but um um i guess i struggled to communicate with him and his wife I would have done fine with my dad, but I think my stepmom insisted that, uh, you know, I, I leave and I was truly shattered. I, I was I was broken. I was actually broken. I jobbed for a year in Hamburg. I could not go back to studying because I could I could, you know, I could barely read a page. And I encountered Kundalini Yoga and basically in my first class said, can I live here? <laughs> And the ashram director, the Taran Tarans, you know, Taran Taran Singh actually, quote unquote, said, um, slow down, kiddo, <laughs> come for 40 days and we'll see if you can cope with the lifestyle and we can, we'll see if, if, if you can be here, you know. So that was, that was super, you know, that gave me a goal. And then two weeks later, Yogi Bhajan was in Amsterdam and I said, you know, I'll do anything. I'll clean the toilets, polish the silver, but I want to be there and meet him so that I can know what I'm getting myself into. And then we really had that connection and I really felt he took me under his tutelage and he gave me some some pretty, um, you know, strong recommendations of what I must do and what I mustn't do. He put me on a diet and, you know, said various things to me. And then I was like fully, fully in the lifestyle and that was basically it. And I thought mm. I had commitment problems, right? I mean, I jumped in fully. <laughs> I still had short hair, you know, tied a turban while my hair was growing out. And, and wow. And that was January 81. Wow. And so from there, just full dedication, like you helped to start organizing everything that started coming out of Hamburg, like because Germany was a main center to really grow Europe, wasn't it? We were the European center. And I then sort of by Yubajan's words became the, the European regional secretary, you know. Like, mm, right. <laughs> I mean, Special. Exactly. I mean, it was... <laughs> kind of beautiful because it made you toe the line and made you feel that what you did was was relevant and important and you you had to be part of it and that was motivating you know I mean mm -hmm. I I was like a complete novice but here I had a function and I did 3HL stuff and you know I knew English so I translated stuff and I was working for the Golden Temple restaurant I mean uh, the Golden Temple company and then we organized all these events and I was sort of fully in that, you know, multi working for these various entities. Wow. Okay. So here you are fully on committed. Now you're the regional secretary, Yogi T Europe, right? Yogi T was uh, based in yeah. Amsterdam, right? We, no, no, we, 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 we were so like mixing the spices in the basement and packing it there in like hundred grand bags, you know? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then, organizing the European Yoga Festival, which for those that don't know, you want to explain it was like the solstice for Europe? Yeah, and at that uh, at that time, we were like 300 people at the Yoga Festival. And you've been there, you know, it's been 2000, 2500, you've been there at those days. I've only been in the last couple of years, but I know that my brothers yeah. have much nostalgia for the early years when you're talking about from, you know, 80 to 87 and into the 90s. Yeah. So here you are, you're taking up, you know, full, um, full leadership and also, as you said, tutelage under YB, which there's a level of specialness quality to it. Um, 
1986, to even mention that you had felt sadness for not, do you want to speak to that, for not joining his staff in the sense that you knew that that insular life wouldn't work for you? Well, I used to go to the U.S. every year. You know, we'd go to summer solstice and to ladies' camp and all of that. And I would do two sevas. I'd either transcribe, which was good fun, because um, I could understand the stuff that some of the uh, first language English speakers, my American peers, wouldn't understand. And because because English is a second language for me, same like for Yogi Bhajan, I could understand some of the stuff that they weren't understanding. So it was good fun. I, I would do that seva, and I would also work at his house and 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 clean in the early morning, and also cook. You know, I I had friendships there with people who cooked at the time as well. Yeah, so, and I basically did that every year. Yeah. And then, so when he asked you to finally come on staff, you just kind of knew that that lifestyle of just being there twenty four seven wouldn't work. Like that was where that was coming from. You know, there was always a very intense energy there, and um, I, I was obviously drawn to it, but I kind of felt that I would combust, you know, in the presence of Mr. 10,000 Volks. And I also felt a bit like it, we were all like moth, you know, dancing around the flame, and you kind of burn or not, you know. And I I went, I, I won't be able to hold on to um, my my mind or my psyche for lack of a better word because when we worked with yogi bhajan it was you know jump and how high you know and i don't mean that in a negative sense it was just he was just a person who always managed to push um, the other beyond what they perceived as as their boundaries mm. and there was good and bad to it you know certainly as a formative medicine it was highly stimulating and um for me, when I got into the Dharma, it was a way of saying, geez, I still have capacity and somebody believes in me and there's stuff I can do as opposed to I'm a consummate basket case, you know, so so the fact that he actually set goals and trusted people and had belief in them felt um, reassuring and, and very, very focused and, you know, it was a very majorly formative life for me including all the discipline you know and that discipline you know you say you you, you leave the ashram you, you take the ashram with you you know definitely and there were peers in those days with whom i'm friends to this day and i'm very grateful for that mm. but that doesn't mean that there isn't things that i can absolutely look at from the distance and say um not entirely healthy mm. You know, including this experience of if you just knuckle down enough and work hard enough, then everything else is going to resolve. And I don't believe that. You know, you need to have other tools at looking at what's happening. You need to feel yourself and you need to dig deep. You know, you can, can't be run so much by your schedule that you put everything else on hold. So I'm, I'm very, very clear on um, the potential for bypass that happens. And... You know, we, we know that Yogi Bhajan was a larger-than-life person and um, um, very radiant in his own way. And there was constant hub-hub and drama around. And, you know, there were the A-listers, the people who were always around. And then there were insignificant people like me at the periphery, you know, when you'd go to Española and be at the ranch and so. But 
um, I mean, in those days, I, I felt that uh, connection and I felt his kindness and his love and his care, you know, so that, that was positive for me. Very well said and very well, um, yeah, very well said. So it's 87 and he introduces you to Harbhajan or how did that come about? Yeah, so, you know, after this 86 where he asked me would I like to actually be part of his staff there and then uh, base camp fin ended and we went to yoga festival where I was also doing seva and Harbhajan from South Africa was having a, a meeting with him as things went in those days. You'd have half hour slots and somebody was there to help and make sure that the next person came on. And I happened to be working in the kitchen and he pulled me out and had me stand next to him and said, yeah, you look, this looks great. Why don't you go and talk? And then he asked me what I thought about that. And I said that I was ready to do that. And in Spain, I organized a budget and a lift. We went there and we were further sort of within his um, his orbit to see if any further come and make his blessing and say, go ahead. And that was basically his blessing of being off you go to South Africa, teach there, work there, you know, missionary, et cetera, et cetera. So how long was that little getting yeah. to know you period? It sounded like you, he, he sent you and her budget to get to know each other for a little bit. Yeah, we uh, went to this chiropractor event. 87 was the first year that Yogi Bhajan did not travel anymore as he did before. You know, he didn't come to every other festival. 1987 was that first year he didn't travel because he was starting to get sick. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. you kind of have this little get to know you with her budget kind of put together. You both like each other. And this is when he says, go to South Africa and, and keep teaching. Correct. So was this exciting for you? Was this something that, that felt like, new terrain, new something new to embark on? Like, how was, how did you feel at that time? Well, when he engaged uh, it, us, it was, um, it was interesting because, you know, in the Dharma, we don't have a normal style of courtship and romancing. We don't, you know, so you either check somebody out energetically and that's pretty much it, right? That was sort of the level of get to know the other person. But that level felt fine to me. You know, it wasn't like, honey, you're married to X so It wasn't. It felt fine. It felt energetically good. And Yogi Bhajan had said to me before I was going, he was going to introduce me to somebody who could live with and fit. Okay, like whatever that means, right? I mean, that felt very, um, very hopeful and very encouraging. And it felt fine with who was a nice productive art. To interview, just, you know, that would be a safe situation, and that was all good. And did it feel exciting? Well, I had had this longing of kind of spreading my wings, you know, like what was going to happen next. Because when we were in the ashrams, it was always like that you go to Salsas or to, in the festival, you thought, oh, well, maybe I will meet the person there, you know, maybe I'll meet the special person there, because those were our areas or where we've socialized um, have opportunity to meet you know maybe your partner because as you know like ashram rules like you know, and you know i worked at a health food store and we we moved like three times because we expanded 
and it was in the days when uh, sanctions were in place and we could get very little stuff because South Africa was very isolated. So we started making everything. We started making tofu and and ghee and you know natural yogurt and granola and things like that. And just to have a fully fledged natural food store, and we were the first. We were one of two natural food stores in South Africa. One was in Cape Town, and we were the other one in in Joburg. Roots and roots. And we talked. And we renovated the house, and uh, we had our baby, and. Yeah, and, you know, just carried on. Awesome. Uh, so the name of the health food store was Fruits and Roots. Yeah. And I uh, had heard about you when I was, I had graduated high school at 18. I was in, uh, it was 95. And I met a man named Mayor Singh, who was another kid who grew up in the Phoenix ashram. And I saw him in Amsterdam when I was visiting my brother on the way to Kenya. And he hands me this card that says fruits and roots. And it showed Harbhajan's name on it. And it was, hey, if you end up traveling to South Africa, go visit them. There's a 3HO ashram there. <laughs> and I had heard that you were the local purveyors of tofu. You made you made fresh juices you had this health food store you ran the yoga center and you know i'm like oh that's awesome and i knew mayor from my own ashram so that was kind of cool so you go there at 87 yeah. for that next 10 years you baby you're you're trying to grow your your um your health food store with your new husband you're growing the area you're teaching kundalini yoga like you're full on yeah, yeah. so at this time it's uh I don't know if there's things you want to tell us between those years, but in 90, I want to say I, um, I was in South Africa. It was 1996. I wrote to Hard Budge and Singh and said I was introduced myself and said I'm an independent student and I grew up in 3HO and I'm in Kenya right now doing my first year of college, but I'd like to come down to South Africa and work for you and finish my second year of university independently. And he writes back saying, well, we can't pay you very much, um, but sure, come on down. <laughs> and and I got to stay in your beautiful ashram and work at your wonderful uh, health food store. And as we said in the beginning, it was one of the freest times in my life um, because I was living in another country and I was taking care of myself. And it was a really beautiful, holistic thing that I stood for. You know, it was all the best parts of my upbringing, in my opinion. Yeah, and it was really lovely when you were there. You know, you were very dynamic and very inquisitive and you had done this outcome-based education and you were writing your thesis and the way you approach everything was with such curiosity and also with such joyfulness. You know, I always experienced you as very, um, very able to just flow with the situation and embrace the situation and embrace people. It was such a special yeah. ashram that they ran. It was in an area. It was in an area called Yeovil, and this area was traditionally an area in in, South, in Johannesburg that um, there was always a mixture of peoples, like where the coloreds would mix. So white and black people, and, and even during the days where that wasn't allowed, which was only a handful of years earlier. And as Pritam Hari mentioned, during her years from eighty-seven to ninety-seven. There were still sanctions on South Africa because of the apartheid laws, and there was starting to become more international recognition. But through those times, they became more and more self-sufficient to be creating things out of their health food store because those things weren't um, allowed to be imported into their country. 
So at the time, it was a very interesting time in South Africa. It was, it was post-apartheid, but there was still a lot of political upheaval, trying to figure out the direction. And the outcome-based education was a big deal in South Africa at the time. So I know for me, it was in real resonance with the way I was doing school. But mostly, I want to say how sweet their ashram was. Um, Harbhajan had built, you know, these two little mini rooms behind their main house and Pritamhari ran the all yoga, all things yoga. So she organized lo local lungers that we would go out onto the streets and serve homeless people. And we made big batches of mung beans and rice and other soups. And she taught health, healthy cooking classes and juicing. And it was kind of like the epicenter of all things healthy um, in Johannesburg and specifically Yeovil area. Yeah, we were kind of super busy, weren't we? Hey, we were absolutely you. on the walls at all times. Those days, they all were, were exceptional because, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good work ethics. Hey, um, those days were really exceptional because we we literally had every artist. Um, you know, person of importance, uh, person, musician, um, coming person comes to our store. It was, it was Botswana come with a security guard. We had Joe Slobo come with a security guard because he was getting that quality food. We had Miriam Makeba shop at us. We had Huma Sekeba shop at us. It was unreal. The, the amount of people who gravitated to that area and to what the shop represented was was totally beautiful and it was such an honor to to serve and work there and serve these people and it was you know just the thing that would get you up in the morning you know you do your sadhana just to set yourself for the day and then you'd be jiving with your customers in a way and those days in yoga were great. I mean we used to go we used to go in Joel. I mean, it's a South African expression, right? You got me into partying, you know, we'd go to this club and we'd dance our little heads off. And it was just these heady days in the 90s where, where we actually like celebrated freedom. And when we had our first democratic elections in 94, um, at that stage, I'm, I'm a permanent resident. I'm not um, a South African citizen. I'm a permanent resident. But in those days, I could still vote. And we all voted ANC because that was liberation party mm. you know so there was um something incredibly beautiful and uplifting in the air and we made lots of friends and lots of beautiful connections there. yeah and remember how we went to the rental plaza and bought fabric and you learned how to sew and all manner of like you know the things we did so many and, oh, and you along. know <laughs> she and you know pritamari really ran you know yoga and the health food side and then harbhajan ran the health food side and the business side and so it was just these two swirls of people like husband and wife that were growing a much larger kind of the impact at that time the the air of freedom at that time it was really such an alive and, and exploratory time and um you know a lot of volatility you know kind of a lot of brewing volatility of of things that needed to come forth so i just think um yeah, I mean, you were there when we had that armed robbery, you know, so. At <laughs> the health food store. not a matter at all, you know. No, at the, at the, uh, house. At the ashram. At the house. You know, we had a, at the house. So we hold up at the house and I think you were in the back or, uh, you know, 
place and the litter were in the back and it all happened actually so swiftly you know us actually being robbed in the front of the house mm -hmm. and then as the processing afterwards we did these absolutely raucous beautiful games you know we did this game of capture the flag we did it front and the back of the ashram remember Yes. We actually did quite a lot of like new age, so-called new age games with all our staff, you know, we we're doing fabulous games in the, in the park just to deepen the communication and the conversation with each other. Yeah. And we did, was, we did very innovative, that era. very innovative, you know, ashram. I think it had a lot to do with like where I was at, right? I was, I had, was coming in and exploring and then we had Feiswale and Nilito in the other room and there was just so much, um, room for curiosity and growth and and you were real committed mm -hmm. to healthy communication and us all really knowing each other and anyway it was just yeah. fascinating it was very a pivot point in my life and what I'm hearing in this story here is that I leave because my intent was to go back to South Africa go back to, to America and then come back but six months later is when YB appoints um, this uh, this minister to come to South Africa to support the mission of your growth yeah, why did you not come back, Guru Nishan? So my intent was to come back because I didn't really see a future for me and my husband anywhere else. You know, there was no way he could come to the U.S. I didn't have any way to financially sponsor him. I never really thought that was an option. And I really saw a future for myself in South Africa, especially with my pursuit in education. I loved being there. There was just so much I liked about that time. Um, so that was my intent. Um, what happened was Feiswali didn't seem to be well from a distance. He didn't communicate well with me. It sounded like he had moved out of the ashram. I was concerned about him. He was always telling me about all the danger things. And as I'm kind of working, trying to save money um, to get back over, I'm in the Virginia ashram and another 3HO couple um, offers to sponsor him. So that's how okay. that shifted was because a couple in the mm -hmm. Virginia ashram helped me be able to um, sponsor Faisuali to come to the U.S. So that's kind of where that pivot right. came from. But before that offer, it would I would have never anticipated anything else. I was just going to save money and come back to South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. So then your life took off in that direction, hey? Yeah. whole different place right he came into dc i was in Absolutely. the dc ashram at the time and so it went into a totally different pivot but i think about that because when i heard that six months later you know uh this you know i i call them the head honchos you know like these these big male healer influences get sent to an area by yb and and it's always a big hoopla you know you get sent to an area to support that local group's mission to spread the teachings, you know, and here you, I didn't know all that happened because we kind of lost communication as, as I got more enthralled in things here. Yeah. But take, take it from there. Cause that happened six months. That was 97 must've been like fall of 97. Exactly. So, so Yogi Bhajan sends this man to us, uh, with a very warm letter of recommendation and, um, in a way, it was like a deja vu, you know, where somebody with um, good intention sends you somebody, but you don't really have a say in the matter. I mean, it could have been a nice thing to have spoken to Yogi Bhajan on the phone and discussed this, but um, 
in these years, we always had letters, and I think I must have gone to the U.S. once or twice during all those years that you know I was then in South Africa. So from the distance, it wasn't possible to go annually at all. You know, I was basically there and had to plow through, and you know things were difficult and money was tight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it would have been nice to actually have discussed it, but he basically sent him to us with a very warm recommendation. And um, this man started living at us. Not so happy for Habajan because he felt that this man was actually just getting a free ride. And you know that Habajan is pretty, pretty uh, strict in many ways, you know, and like not much, you know, you can't palm stuff off, off onto him. He, he is sensitive to that and he, he will notice. So this man was trying to do um, personal consults and First, we drove him around and drove him to a new center that had opened, and then he got the students to drive him around. And it was a little bit like he was a VIP and he was being fitted and dined and after sessions going out with that student or with students. And to me, that was a little unfamiliar because I hadn't seen that teachers had this particular personal uh, cult standing, and this man created that. And I thought, whoa, things must have moved in a different direction since last I checked. And also in our Hamburg ashram, that was not the style. You know, there wasn't a personal cult, but this man created that. And um, to really much regret later on, I wasn't aware that he was um, feeling people up and under the banner of Moonpoint Massage actually um, violating them sexually. You know, like, you know that there's Moonpoint in the clitoris and the vagina and he was working those Moonpoints. And, and the breasts. And the breasts. And it was very puzzling and actually deeply embarrassing to me because I thought that I had... Um, my eye on the ball you know I have seen situations before where people were having an affair and I could pick it up and I could see what was going on and I could not do that I was blind to it and I've spoken to my friend and my friends who in the end also said geez but Pritam Hari you recommended us to that guy you know like you we trusted you you were our teacher you know I mean can you actually understand like the uh sort of wrapped upness of this situation and how how much of our <clears throat> mutual and collective pain body was being activated there. You know, I was part and parcel of that in some ways, of handing these people over to him and saying, you know, work with this man, he's a teacher, you know. So there was a lot in the pain body around that. And we certainly have um, processed it. And um, for me, all I could really do is acknowledge and sort of offer my deep and sincere apologies around how I unknowingly like promoted this man. But anyways, he I want to pause, I wanna pause yeah. real quick and just point out a couple of things you brought up. One, Harbhajan Singh was a very pragmatic, practical guy. He was never wrapped up in like kind of hierarchy and larger institutional things. I think if anything, you were more focused on the yoga and kind of like how to make sure you're representing the yoga trainings properly. But he focused on the business and kind of liked his life as it was, um, something of this nature. And I'm pointing this out to say, 
any of us who stayed at the ashram, we paid rent. So we yeah. paid, it was a minimal rent, Harbhajan, you know, you, you all like kept us in like family, but we still contributed to the household. And then we yeah. worked at the rest at the health food store too. So we were able to get compensated, but we also contributed it. This wasn't just giving space in savic, save ways. Yeah. And I'm pointing it out because what I heard you say is that he, this gentleman who came, who was sent by YB as, as, you know, kind of given this recommendation, whether it was official or whether, I guess I want to say anytime YB sent anyone, there was a level of official dumb to it much less if this person had titles behind it, like an SS or an MS or whatever, if he was a Sikh Dharma minister, if he was on Khalsa Council, if he represented anything. And, and he's coming from one ashram in Española and then being sent by YB wherever he's being sent. I'm hearing you say that he didn't contribute and pay Harbhajan. He did not. And Harbhajan started feeling really used and he was very critical of it, you know, and he just went, this guy's a freeloader, you know, and I don't want this. And I think that's an important aspect because then it went from that to where he starts doing healings, um, counseling sessions. And remember, this is a, a regal looking African-American man wearing white and turban. And, you know, we all know there's not that many black African-American people in Sikh Dharma anyway. You know, we could name them. We could hold it on a couple hands here, you know. But in terms of even like historical figures is even less. Yeah, I mean, that people who people. say that this man screwed it up for 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 black people in South Africa because he transgressed, uh, um, you know, in, in unspeakable ways, really. You know, yeah. And it's important that it's bad you know, or awful or so, but it was um, a pathology and it was an addictive sexual behavior. And none of that, there is no um, way that can ever be justified in any terms, under any circumstances, you know, simple as that. And the trust that you had in having your teacher send this person, then you automatically extend your credibility and trust, which is what lends those students who had built up years worth of trust in you to then automatically extend that trust to, to this person who's living in your household, in your ashram. And then, like you said, going from, you know, I'm a teacher, I'm this and that, to kind of like getting a following, kind of his own cult of personality. And the healer sessions, the counseling sessions, and the, even the moon center sessions, this is a really important kind of pin to put into this conversation because I've noticed it as a formula that's carried on beyond YB. We obviously know now he did certain things, but he also passed this on to other people. And we've seen... Um, spawns of abuse in like this example where a lot of women got abused in the name of healing and counseling sessions among the teachings yeah and it's ironic because i have a format of teaching the moon points you know that is um the way i learned it you know so that other way is um yeah completely completely alien to me um I want to just insert here that um, this man was actually in many ways a good teacher. So Habaj and I, we were in crises at that time. We were just distancing from each other. We were burned out. We were working too hard. We weren't communicating. Um, 
in a in a in a helpful in a positive no and those are loaded words we weren't communicating in a real way we weren't reaching each other you know we were drifting apart and we were having a lot of buildup of just frustration and in a way hostility and and hardness between us um you know as can happen when you just got too many balls in the air and you don't know what you're all juggling and um what was helpful for me at the time at the, is that this man actually suggested, you know, why don't you stay in the cottage? I stayed in that cottage where you stayed. And it gave me a chance to just uh, get a bit of fresh air because I was I was capitally burning out, you know. I didn't know what all I was doing. I was just working like a machine. And um, <laughs> I remember this man and I went traveling because we went to Cape Town to teach there. <laughs> Um, after sadhana, uh, he said, come, come, let me give you a massage. You know, I think my shoulders were sore. And then he said, take your top off. You know, I can't really get there. And I said, no, uh, I'm going to keep my top on. I'm cold. And I don't know what that was, you know, but I wasn't going to let, um, um, you know, a person just get closer than I wanted to get close, you know. So he massaged my shoulders. Fine. You know, at that stage, I still didn't know what he was doing. Then, um, in that year, our son started going to India, and it was actually something that we all discussed with each other, because in the process of Harbhajan and I having this sort of icy cold vibes and standoffs, I felt really miserable for my son, because, you know, I had come from divorced parents that had loved each other very much, then divorced, and it was extremely hard for me, because growing up overseas the family unit is extremely close and I was very very close to both my parents and to see that I thought I'm not going to do that to my to my child you know because he was trying to communicate between Habaja and I you know that that just didn't fly that was that was bad so and and we've hence spoken about it and Hari Bhajan actually said you know we could have found another solution you could have also discussed it more but the thing is, at that time when he was 10, I, I still felt he was a little bit young, but I thought it's going to be better that he's not going to be in the area of warfare between the parents. Um, and he was excited at the time to go, but, um, you know, a kid will want to do a little bit what the parents wants a child to do and gain value out of that, you know, and get excited about it. And he was also starting to feel at his Waldorf school that they were ostracizing him a little bit as being the only little kid with the turban and the one watershed moment there was when they had um, a presentation of all the religions but they didn't invite him to present on Sikhism which he would have done or invited his parents to present on Sikhism you know so he started to feel very um, a little bit like fringe and mm. out on the limb so he started going to school in in Amritsar and then was solstice and at that stage five people from here went uh, overseas you know to go to solstice and do some teacher training and things like that and then spoke to Yogi Bhajan and said um, what this man is doing is totally incorrect so that just sort of came came out in some ways it started it started coming out so in 99 People actually yeah. brought it to YB's attention that this was happening actively yeah. in this. And what okay. happened there is that another woman who has hence been 
um, getting a lot of bad press as a whistleblower came to South Africa. You know, we had like a spate of teachers coming there, which was really beautiful. And she started noticing something being really weird and off, and she confronted it. And in that process, all of this came out. And she um, has had a very hard time because she has been blamed for creating a character assassination for this man. And it was totally not true. She was the brave person who actually said, this is what's going on. It is incorrect. This must not happen. We need to bring it to the serious things lab. And that's what this group did. And this man was then basically stripped of his titles. He was not a Kundalini Yoga teacher anymore. He was not a minister and he was not allowed to play music. And as far as I knew, um, Yogi Bhajan was working with him to accelerate and facilitate his healing. And as then transpired later is that he was simply shipped off to Atlanta and stripped of his titles. And there he was, you know, um, carrying on with life. But he was neither healed, exonerated, um, rehabilitated, um, proclaimed as healed and, you know, back in the fold. None of that happened. It was just something that was in limbo, which is an extremely hard situation. You cannot be shamed or blamed um, and then never have a chance to come right and be accepted again. You then have to either bask, you know, and like override any of that or get into stories get into narratives that are fabricated and that's exactly what happened and that is still to some extent the situation today so then there was also people later you know now we're talking two decades who said that this man was poorly um that he was wrongly dealt with um that he was character assassinated etc etc so pause. So instead of yeah. actually addressing the transgressions, the actual dealing with the abuse victims, dealing with the, and, and how many women about in South Africa came forward about his abuse? More than 20. More than 20. So for at this time, I want to just reiterate what you just said. Uh, um, quote, for lack of a better word, a higher up, somebody, you know, that has been around a long time in, in the organization is the person that Pratamhari was just referring to as the whistleblower, where this person came to South Africa and started to say, no, these things are not okay. And this moved it forward to escalate, to bring it to YB, to be addressed. But instead of actually addressing it, the way that it was handled was as if YB was, was taking care of him. And then he gets, you know, a level of, of shamed and, but never actually rehabilitated, reconciled, never actually the the people who got abused never got like their full voice until many decades later and his title gets stripped he's not allowed to play music and but he's able to just carry on in whatever persona he wants to carry on but never really addressing the sexual abuse um, patterns and many decades later this community and those impacted by this particular event are still revisiting these things to try to heal what was left as gaping wounds decades earlier. So the whistleblower was an older white woman. So there was also that dynamic, you know, she was female and she was white. So that then also became a gambit where, you know, a ball was being pushed from one line to the other and saying that this was, you know, a, a racial insult. It was a, 
a character um, assassination from a white woman to a black man. Correct. And they started adding all these layers of narratives that correct. was bypassing the original abuses of 20 women. And let me point out that it has come for forward that there were a, at least one person in New Mexico that was abused prior to him being sent to South Africa. Correct. So and there was, was a history and a pattern of his abuse prior to him being sent. And this only came out later that Pritam Hari finds this out, realizing, oh, he, this came out, YB knew about it, and then sent him to your ashram as if it was a blessing. Yeah. Carry and, on. You know, then you actually have to ask at some stage, like, who betrayed who? You know, like, where did the betrayal start? Um, it feels very complex. And... Oof. Entangled I mean, is an understatement. You know, when when I was in the ashram in Hamburg, I always had so much regard and huge admiration for Yogi Bhajan. I thought he was the bravest person I knew, you know, and also when he confronted people, I thought that was in many ways brave. And I did not ever see him cross boundaries with people, you know, the way the victims of you know sexual transgressions have come forward i've never seen that i've seen him um cut people down yeah and when that happened our ashram we would do our best afterwards to counsel and console and work with the person and resurrect but when i look at yogi bhajan and the way he worked i know that he was to say that he was not risk averse is an understatement, you know, I think that he deliberately um, took chances with people. And in some ways it worked out and in some ways um, it created a lot of damage in, in people. And I also feel that those of us who actually um, rose to the projection or rose to the call of what he extended, um, I think that collectively for us as a Dharma, it still created pathologies and I, um, you know, would like to elaborate that a little bit. Because even when you rose to what he asked of you, then that would actually intensify the specialness that we have. And that is a dividing factor. It's an isolating factor. So even if we have group sadhana or we have individual sadhana, whatever it is, each and every one of these yogis who was given a special task, a special brief, a special title, we sit in a kind of isolation with that that shields us and and, and puts, you know, kind of a veil between us and the other person and gives us a degree of specialness that I find on a spiritual path to be uncalled for and unwarranted. Mm. Mm. Um, so at this time, the, you didn't go to solstice, but other people, had uh, the five had told, uh, has spoke to him. Your sense is that YB is handling him directly and you carry on to continue the mission in South Africa. Correct. Minus this man. Correct. And, and you know, we know that that kind of healing and that sort of, uh, in a way, rehabilitation will take time. It will take um, counseling and meditations and process and things like that. So we're all patient and we're all uh, fine and in trust, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Yogi Bhajan that he's going to be handling it. And at the end of 99 was the Parliament of World Religions. And the Sirsons have came out with entourage. And he meets my husband at the airport and he says, um, I invited you to come, but you didn't come. And now I'm coming because I want to correct a wrong. And the wrong was 
that this man had, um, you know, been been on such a binge, actually. I mean, I can't describe it any other way. You know, he came and he had like an open field to transgress and, you know, do this thing that he was doing. And then, you know, we're going into the 2000s, life carries on. Um, I actually, EPS. the entire... EPS is getting started about this time because of this incident. There, as an organization, they're saying they're going to create an ethics space for companies. That is what I heard, and it's still not entirely clear, and documents have gone missing around that, but it's not entirely clear what actually was given to this man as a therapy and as a work to do, and there is no records of that. So um, okay. to me, in many ways, it feels like that went into into hiding, into underground, into a gray zone, into a gray area where nothing was happening, where I think a lot of people were suffering, including this man and his wife. And I think it created an ostracization in the community and it created a standoff between the person who'd been the whistleblower. Um, her husband was um, in a legal function in the Dharma and and they were a long time couple in the Dharma too. Let's not, you know, she was not no newbie. You know, she was a long time completely person, you know. So, you know, the kind of um, silencing or, you know, it's like a silencing cancel culture around that um, is actually quite heartbreaking. And the wife of this man confronted my friend, the whistleblower and et cetera, et cetera. She eventually, um, passed from cancer and the tragedy all of that of, of all of that the story around that his was, wife did his wife died yeah the life. pain that she went through was um exacerbated by the ostracization that he went through so you know the narratives kind of carried on instead of blame shifting and and, and blaming and hurt and unaddressed hurt at some stage it was really um some sort of unbelievable miracle synchronicity. I was at solstice. Don't you remember the year? But you know how when you don't have a partner, you raise your hand. And I end up in a group of 2,000 people matching up with a woman who had, the been, had been the first victim of this man in Albuquerque. I mean, what are the chances? The chances are like, this is, you know, really one in 2,000, right? Or one in 1,000. No way. And we end up doing tapping and massage and counseling and crying and you know we went to the tent and we discussed this whole thing and we walked away with like a beautiful sense of um you know we did some healing event around that which was really um very beautiful and and powerful and i feel that there was a purpose to that that we met and we had this discussion wow because on our side you know, the, the dynamics and the energy of Kundalini Yoga is you're feeling low and you're doing yoga and you feel great, you know, you override. And for that moment that you practice and you practice powerfully, you're doing a whole lot better, you know. So you're always riding on this energy of yeah. this this dynamic, fantastic energy. And we carried on doing that. And I am... Um, you know, I practice yoga, I love yoga, I love kundalini yoga, I love the depth of it, but I don't use it to um, 
you know, override whatever emotions are going on. And I started learning that process for myself when the students have passed. So I'd like to just pause and point out that this whole incident got exposed in around 99. YB found out, other leadership found out there was no, you know, place to complain. And yet what YB does is send somebody to South Africa who is this white woman, longtime leadership position. Her husband was in a longtime leadership position, legacy person from the beginning. She ends up being outed as being, quote, the whistleblower. But this was addressed in the community. And then she kind of brought it to an, an international level. But I want to point out that YB knew this is a part of the tactic. So while some people call her a whistleblower, I call her a pawn because YB used people as pawns to create webs of more confusion and the aftermath of confusion instead of addressing 20 women being sexually abused in the name of healing, in the name of counseling, in the name of I'm going to help you heal your past wounds, this is not unique to this person who got sent to South Africa, this African-American man. This is not unique to him, even though he sounds like he was a serial predator. This is a formula that is very 3HO. It's very much still alive and it's still being passed on through the code of silence and confusion. Because when there is an ethos of silence, then new stories get to breed that aren't founded on the original abuses that have taken place. And then new layers of abuse and new layers of abuse. And I can only imagine what happened to his wife, his children, and not getting the support and help he needed as a serial predator. The woman who, quote, outed him was at the pawn of YB. YB did this. And then he attempted to send this man to another African country. So this is not unique to South Africa. This is not unique to this community. It is very much a YB the predator formula, and it's very much infused into the teachings and so many of the personas of healers and teachers and wise men and women wearing holy white turbans to be able to have a bigger projection than they have roots into their own bodies. 2004. Um, I go to Council Council, and a few days later, he passed. Yeah. So I was actually there at the time when, when, when he passed over. Mm. And you start self-examining in a new way, is what I'm hearing, where you start actually like feeling the depth of numbness or depression, and noticing what kind of the the use of the yoga to override, as your bio says even though all these years of yoga and sadhana and all the things you still notice that, ah, huh, what I'm feeling inside isn't exactly yummy. Well, the interesting thing is that um, he passed on a Wednesday morning and on Sunday afternoon, I get the subtle body experience of him. I only had this twice in my life. Once when I was leading a healing meditation and I get the subtle body thing where he winks at me, you know, in meditation. 
and five minutes later somebody says he's fine he's out of surgery you know so i had that once at ladies camp when i was leading a meditation there but three days before his passing he comes to me in the subtle body and he says pray for me and i freak out and i kind of go like a two-year-old and go no no way no way because on some level i'm i get this that he's going to pass and on another level i'm going well, you know, I haven't actually had this contact with you for, I don't know, 10 years, and this is like too little too late, and I'm just not trusting it in some ways. So, right, I get home, and I'm going into this, you know, deep grief, deep depression. Um, oh, yeah, and what also happened, you know, this was Sunday, I was flying back on, on Wednesday, actually, the very day that he passed, um, and I'm thinking, no, if I'm going to go and sit in front of his uh, dome, surely somebody's going to say, well, gee, you can't sit here, you know, like, what the heck are you doing here, you know, so I thought, no, no, I'm just, I'm just, this is not going to work, you know, somebody's going to actually, um, um, you know, ask me to leave, and when I went back to South Africa, I just went, I, I'm nowhere, you know, I, I'm not coping, and I don't have emotional coping tools, and I started doing working a lot with this technique of EFT because it helped me to um, process my incredibly um, high-strung psyche, you know, where I'd, I'd be incredibly emotional in my, within myself but didn't know how to actually work with it. So I'd be quite contained, quite, you know, my, my husband always jokes, he says, your poker face. <laughs> I'd be quite contained, but I'd be off the charts in my psyche. So I started to learn how to do the tapping technique, which helped me a lot because it made me brave enough so that I could look at what my emotion was without feeling like I was going to lose the plot. And I did that for a very long time. And I started to be able to have the capacity within myself to look at anything and everything that was happening in my psyche without the need to run away from it or override or, you know, act out or go into food or any of the other coping mechanisms that are all very toxic and very pathological. And, yeah, and maybe just adding a little note, I started doing teacher training in 99. Um, um, you know, asked Yogi Bhajan and he said, Yes, yes, for sure, you are the teacher of all of us, you know, again, like a very sweeping and very big statement that you can interpret whichever way, you know, like some of them actually, you know, felt so reassuring at the time, but in retrospect, what do you do with that, um, you know, grace in parentheses, you know, if you don't feel that you can actually completely measure up, but yeah, I started teaching. And um, this is... Um, the the gentleman who had gotten sent there was helping kind of establish that teacher training with you. He correct? started doing it, and then when we basically sent him back, you know, um, you carried uh, returned to sender. Uh, we then went into um, creating the teacher training there. And can and I ask, when you went to the solstice years later, and you had met the woman who was one of his, his original or earlier earliest abuse victims in? in New Mexico or in Albuquerque at that time, like, how were you reconciling? Like, did you think YB knew? Did you think he didn't know? Do you think he was handled? So was it just kind of more into that umbrella of trust that this came out, it's complex, 
but YB is figuring it out and let's carry on. You know, in those days we didn't have WhatsApp yet, you know, now we communicate to everybody like very swiftly on WhatsApp. So at that stage, um, we had a healing conversation. We didn't have a conversation that would have been a legal conversation. Like when exactly did this happen? When was the timeline? Did, um, were you able to speak to anybody about that? Uh, what was the recourse that was given around that? Um, at that stage in my dharmic life, I thought that these situations were few and far between and that there was no body, no ombudsman, ombudswoman who was going to look at that. So I didn't know who to actually speak to around that. Mm. Um, I, the, the vibe generally was, if something like that happened, it was highly unusual and it was just being like tut, 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 you know, like this is not dharmic and this is not how it's done. And there was actually, as far as I can tell, like a silencing culture around it. And to me, what it seemed like was that this barely happened. And in retrospect, I realized that so much happened mm. that was below the radar. So if and I how normalized to... it was, right? How normalized it just got pushed beneath the surface. Well, it was only normalized through the, the culture of silence. Yeah. You know, the silencing, the silence created... Um, uh, a state of normalization, a false normalization, yeah. or an enforced normalization. Mm. And if you remember how it was in the 80s, you know, Ashan directors would have conversations with him, but nobody else, like the footfall wouldn't. We would get like the distillation of what happened. But in the Ashan director conversations with the Sir Singh Sab, you know, some of these big problems would be addressed. This person was falling off the wagon, that person was acting out, that person was having an affair that person was, um, you know, in dire straits and struggling. And then, you know, Gurinishan, if you look at the 80s, um, the 80s, people were doing a lot of transaction analysis. People would go to a psychologist and they would just talk. You know, so somehow our counseling style in the Dharma uh, mimicked that a little bit. But talking doesn't work ultimately. You know, there is a different level of work. So we either did kriyas or we talked and and that was beautiful in a way but there were massive crises that people would have and this would be discussed between ashram director uh you know husband and wife and yogi bhajan and then stuff would get resolved so um failing that there wasn't an there wasn't an ethics bureau where you could go and talk about that and if you spoke to somebody who you considered to be more having more authority or having more knowledge, or um, having more of an in, it felt um, delicate because you didn't know if you'd be compromising the person whom you would speak to. Mm, well said. So if, you know, I then spoke with that woman, but I didn't know who to confide in around that myself. I know that with because if I spoke to else who um, had more of a place of addressing it, then maybe I was burdening that person with a responsibility for this that they themselves couldn't handle. So of the relative silence around mishaps and misdemeanors and people struggling and people being in crises, there was a relative 
culture of silence around it. And when I had this um, meeting with that woman that was already beyond Yogi Bhajan's passing, so when Yogi Bhajan was around, um, there was a lot of direction of problems towards him. And, you know, as you know, he always sometimes had two phones, you know, on each ear and would be counseling people. And he counseled people to look at our ashram. He counseled to two, we all be there, like, you know, sitting in the room while he was counseling, and then we all get up really early again, and so did he. So it was always deferred to his, um, him resolving it. Mm. And in his absence, that was really not an option, and there wasn't an institution or an office that was dealing with it. If you recall, you know, that mid, those mid-2000s, there was that whole upla around unto infinity and that whole court case, and that was consuming everything else. And still, when I met that woman, I didn't think that these sexual transgressions were happening on any kind of scale. I thought that this was uh, one terrible event, and we happened to be at the unfortunate cold phase of having of experiencing this in our country. Like, how did that happen? Like, this man ended up at us and, you know, acted out so, so, so terribly. So there was like a whole lot of like gray and, you know, like, what do I do with the situation energy around that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then many years later, um, when we tried to, and, and when situations like that happen and there isn't a proper recourse, then other people want to blame shift. And I had a whole nother conversation over an email with also an African-American friend of this man who was silencing this and saying, no, but he had an affair. That's what I know. And I said, you are absolutely mistaken. It wasn't an affair. He was taking advantage of people left, right, and center. So, yeah. And I want and listeners, I want listeners to really hear that, you know, the, the complexity of this, you know, that um, within the ethos of a silence culture, then other narratives get started around why this person's getting ostracized or this person is doesn't like this person because of their race or, you know, then race baiting and different things. And, and then what it does is it skews the details of the actual happenings. And so it's, it, it, these things have kind of not had avenues of public exposure until very recently, even though we're talking about two decades ago, even prior to him passing, but then moving into like your state of mind was that these things happened few and far between at the time you didn't necessarily know he was doing this internally with all the women that were serving him in different ways. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. there's this culture that's being built, but hidden and silenced. And then what you're saying about another friend who's African-American, you know, silencing the stories. And it's like, oh yeah, we had heard he had an affair. So essentially a, the abuse that took place in South Africa of 20, 20 people, 20 women, one of the most documented of these abuses, it tried to get pushed off as if that person was having an affair with the abuser. And the historical context of that within 3HO, it goes all the way back to my childhood around the the seemingly normality or okayness of the of infidelity, but instead of naming abuse for what it was, and yeah, 
Yeah, and I think that I think we were under this impression or in this teaching that if you just have a strong enough discipline that that's going to curtail anything. But that is not true. You know, it is talking and processing and having a level of transparency and honesty and not actually basking and, you know, having a big head. Yeah, I mean, the, the higher you rise, um, the more opportunity to fall and falling is has these flavors of shame and blame especially within the context of 3HO and what it meant to be very much so and you know like shame is sort of uh, being bad and guilt is acting bad Mm. you know so Wow. Some of how we lived and practiced simply did not allow some level of deep honesty within oneself. And people would meet each other a lot through their persona. Hmm. Truth, Um, truth. I want to show you really quickly the moon. You just have to you just have to look at this for a sec here. I'm gonna put the, the screen on. Okay, turning around, going to the window. A little bright. Can you uh, look at full moon? Oh, oh my word. I love it's it. so beautiful. And those mountains. Wow. Yeah. We're just in the middle of the countryside. Surrounded by mountains, and it's 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 becoming evening now. Anyways, <laughs> I love it. Quick so little... you've really given us a, a good picture into being a remote ashram. You're on the southern tip of Africa. It's remote. You don't have the communication abilities we have now. You've been given kind of a large mission to spread the teaching, so to speak, and then you have help, right? One of the few African-American Sikh Dharma ministers gets to come. It seems very a part of the privilege and, and opportunity to grow. And then and the number of, of abuses happen. And so the years forward, it just sounds like you were really committed to reconciliation and healing amongst the people that needed voice within your space. But assuming that the leadership that you've trusted, your teacher that you've trusted, was handling it on the other end. And that this was just kind of a minor incident not something that's happened many, many other places at that time. That was kind of the assumption that you're, you're letting us feel you were living under. And then by the time YB dies, you move right into kind of your own personal processing of, of realizing you haven't been feeling feelings and you've actually learned to bypass them using a lot of the tools that you've learned to love. So what I want to say is that part of how I experienced the lifestyle is um, if I just do everything right, then there's a certain magical uh, thinking that no harm will befall you, you know. And and I can only um, say that in the context of my own traumatized background, and there is a magical thinking around it. Um, so now this, now my my state of being is very different, you know. Like the ashram rules, they were a substitute for. A kind of 
way of living or a way of looking at uh, wrongdoing that was still magical. You know, today I would address things very differently. But then I was under this sort of assumption that if I just do everything right in terms of my dharma, then things need to keep going right, you know, yeah. because we commit them to Gurundas and what have you, you know. And there's nothing, nothing, it's not entirely wrong, but it is wrong in the sense that if we don't address it on the deepest level, then we will be in a sort of bewitchment and enchantment that is unhealthy. And I need to step away from that categorically. Mm. You know, like magical thinking won't do. When we later, years later, this is still in the 2000s, tried to address it with the then, um, you know, the, the lady who was heading up EPS. There was so many vague comments around that and correspondence had been lost. And what we found out in the end is that this man had not gotten therapy. He was just basically... For me, in my in my mind, thrown to the wolves, you know, thrown to the vultures. Somehow he was he was cut loose, and I find that unspeakably. Um, I find it cruel, and I find this state of in limbo um, unacceptable, completely unacceptable. It's like you either keep up with the Joneses or you somehow you don't feature. And there is something very um, maladjusted around that. Mm. Absolutely. And then we Just... still had another incredible incident with that same lady that was completely bungled and bungled in a, in a very, very destructive way. And people never owned up to the mm. fact that they screwed this up. Like, you know, there's, oh, you're so ho-hum, you know, we, okay, yeah, this didn't work out so well, you know, like, like, if, if, if you really want to go deep with things that you have done wrong, you have to get to the root of it, and then you have to change your behavior. And you can't just say sorry and then carry on. Yeah, so take us there, Pratamari. Like, um, what I hear you saying is that the person in EPS, that they're not actually addressing it. They're not, you realize years later that he was never really helped, supported. He just got shunned. He was just ostracized. And therefore, within that ostracization, a new narrative yeah. can be bred or breeding, um, which then doesn't really create healing for A, those who are originally abused, for the abuser or the predator involved to be reconciled. And then this actually created further incidences that happened for you in the 2000s with this same person in EPS who basically wasn't addressing complaints properly. Well, at some stage, this man goes to summer solstice and another musician uh, invites him onto the stage and they, they play and they jam together. And then the EPS lady runs onto the stage uh, and says, this man is not allowed to, to play. And oh, can you just Jesus. picture this? That's you know? horrible. So now, it's horrible. So it's both horrible for him and it's also horrible for her because guess what? Here's another white woman who comes onto the stage and she gets in the neck. You know, like this lady has has taken massive stuff uh, onto her shoulders um, um, for which I don't believe that she's equipped. You know, energetically oh. she has invited uh, a lot of... Um, a lot of difficulties, you know, that she has not had the skills or the capacity or the energetic resilience to deal with. And that's kind of another story. But 
It is another story. Um, and she's setting, she's set up for failure, right? Because nobody understands the content and the audience doesn't get it. Nobody's informed. There's no community conversation. There's no transparency. And for her to run up and say, he's not allowed to play like the ultimate Kundalini yoga abuse is to not be able to play as a yo as a musician publicly. No. Yeah. No, like but we're also I'm... putting, we're nailing our colors to the wall and we're saying, you know, we, we have race issues here, you know, and of course this man can milk it because it's true. Because it's true. So let's go there because I, I want you to go there with us. Like, let's, let's get into the, this race aspect because it's so important. Right. So this happens sometime in the 2010, that next, the next decade. and. Um, what we did here is we created a 3HO foundation. We have deep processes with each other. We discuss everything. We are um, committed and answerable to discussing everything in depth with each other. We try and do the best we can with great transparency. We even created our own um, ethics office. Because, in South Africa, this is all in South yes, Africa. Yes, because of course this has to happen everywhere. You know, the Germans yes. have it, these people have it, those people have it. It's very, very important because, you know, things, they may be minor or major, but they cannot be handled by another culture because you missed cultural innuendos, right? If you are, say, in an Arabic country where, you know, a man and woman who are not related uh, cannot touch each other, you can't play a wild game where they're all tumbling all, all over each other. You know, you would be doing a cultural injustice and cultural infringement. So things that are related to um, mishaps, misdemeanors, you know, incorrect um, um, crossing of boundaries, etc., needs to be handled on a local level. So we do all of that in our 3HR Foundation. Our work is pretty good. We're all pretty, uh, pretty uh, constructive and very, very deep with each other. So at some stage, there is a woman here who then lays a complaint with overseas and she says that um, all men are of wrongdoings and the 3HL Foundation SA is too white and it's racist and I'm the worst racist of, of them all. And she lays a complaint of many, many pages, sends it to EPS and EPS comes down on me like a ton of bricks, okay? Mm. And the culture that I observe there is uh, what we've always done, if something happens you defer to the ashram leader to see what is going on okay mm-hmm. and if the complaint is so severe because racism is not a small complaint right it's a very very hard-hitting complaint mm-hmm. then you say well if this person is being considered to be racist then she must be racist okay let's let's climb down on her and they basically handed the complaint over to us unfiltered you know they didn't say what's going on can you tell us or can we interview this lady can we uh, find out more you know how do you see that they basically said you know handle it you know and in your country can we just um remind you that racism isn't going to fly very well i mean the audacity you know of the u.s going you know especially in your country you shouldn't be racist it's 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 bordering on the on the idiocy it's it's daft completely mm. daft to say that yeah anyways then they said no you must get letters of reference from any black person to say that you're not racist 
if you do race studies, Gurunishan, that's the that's the first and the worst thing that you must not do. You know, please don't go to black people and ask them to write you a testimony. To be your token testimony, right? Correct. You cannot. You mustn't. You mustn't put that burden onto another person, and you mustn't do this thing of whitewashing yourself. Yeah, right? absolutely. Because what we do acknowledge and know is that racism is systemic and it is endemic. The entire yes. world has built itself up on giving low melatonin people an advantage and privilege. And it yes. is so deeply buried that uh, we don't know it until we look at it very deeply. Okay, so, so what they then ask of us was a complete testimony to the fact that they had this enormous amount of uninvestigated internal racism, you know, which mm. is a hallmark of our organization. Yes, And the way that comes about um, is, you know, we we have patriarchy. Men have um, more privileges or more freedom than women. And they are largely unaware of it, but they are aware of it to the extent that if they get asked to relinquish some of those privileges, they, are, they object to it. You know, that is a pattern. And they object to it because they think that they will have less of the freedoms that they have sequestered and requisitioned for themselves. So when it comes to racism, it's the same thing. White people in general will have some form of unconscious resistance against being called out around that because they think that some of the privilege that they enjoy, they will now have to give up. And the truth, of course, is that, you know, on some spiritual uh, level of paradigm, there is enough for us all. And sharing means that things will actually grow and be enhanced and be more equitable rather than people now losing out. But that is at um, first glance not obvious to the person, um, you know, who says, me, racist? No, I'm not racist, you know, and what, I must do the work? No, but I'm not racist. Why should I? Right? Mm -hmm. So there is an unconscious resistance. Yes. And... So we, from our side, did an enormous amount of talking with people and getting testimonies and writing everything up and refuting most of it and acknowledging some of it. And when we sent the whole thing back, the whole case came to naught. You know, what EPS said in a very mild letter, they said, learn and grow. I mean, what does that mean? That's what they oh, said. To us. It was actually, it was completely inconclusive. But the way EPS had handled it at the time was... Um, uninformed, stupid, mm. and insensitive. Mm. Which sounds very classic 3HO to me. You know, people think that because they were given uh, a title and they were made this person and that person that they carry it, they don't unless they actually own and do the legwork. You know, yes. like there, there is enormous capacity out of there of intelligence and skills and on some level on a on a collective broad spectrum we may have grace and dignity and angels around us and the grace of the gurus but on some level we don't have enough information or skills to pull it off and it's actually deplorable that there's something around that that is um you know it's basking you know, fake it until you make it. How do you know you're not still faking it and you're actually making it? So, you know, there is some some sort of uh, very poor form woven into that. Yeah, it, it it somehow reminds me of the 
the fake it to make it it's it's our the aura the projection the white purity the all the ways in which the personas of quote being a yogi or being on this lifestyle conscious path the conflation of of i know i've talked about this in past episodes the white exceptionalism and i'm wondering if you could speak to that more because that's what i'm hearing it's that it's that unless you're actually going in and dismantling a lot of these systemic endemic structures that have formed our sense of self as non-melanated individuals we don't see ourselves properly and as an organization that's shown to be more and more true it's it's not seeing itself properly and we pretend like we don't see color something of that nature well if we don't see color then we're being insensitive to you know all the misery that you know people of color have gone through or are going through at all times you know it's a it's it's a bypass right there you know so for people to say that is completely off and it's very very insulting yeah you know, and I want pause, to respect that. pause right there listen to that people if we say and how much of us i know i can absolutely attest that this grow uh, growing up in this dharma gave me that lens of we are the same you know, we bleed red. We are all the same. You know, we are the people of love. You know, we don't see color. We see the, you know, your consciousness. And what we don't understand is in real life, if we're saying those things as if those are holy sentiments to us seeing the totality of a person, what we're actually doing is violating and insulting that person and don't even know it. In Sikh Dharma and Sri H.O., we don't believe that we have internalized racism because, you know, the prima facie, the first and foremost teacher is brown, you know, and because we 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 wear exotic clothing. So, you know, that seems to kind of exonerate us from that, and it totally doesn't. You know, I want to backtrack for a second, even though this conflict was actually made um, bigger and was bungled by EPS and, you know, has still a knock-on effect and still has you know, something of um, a fragmentation in the in the community. Um, I feel that in the bigger picture, it was what had to happen. You know, I, I think that every person in life needs to have one or two or three or something betrayal experiences because this is something which in our psyche we need to process through. We need to be betrayed. It's fine. You know, we'll come out on the other side. It's okay. We are not so important that everything needs to be completely cushioned and, you know, wrapped in roses. It is part of the human condition to go through betrayal and it's part of a spiritual um, process as well. That doesn't mean that um, what EPS or how EPS went about it was, was, was okay. And I continue to see um, a lack of information or a lack of skill around that. So I wanted to say that my vantage point, Gurnishan, is that I have been in this dharma for over 40 years, right? All my adult life, or all yes. my adult, uh, all the decades of my adult life. So I can say that I've dedicated myself to it totally, and I went into it um, very wholeheartedly, and it was my, my lifeline. And, you know, I'm grateful for that. Um, Right from the start, even though we were the European center, we could see that pull and that self-awareness of the U.S. with the sort of hegemonic um, attitude. And I have been 
a little hurt by that forever. Because it is a little strange that when you see yourself in as much of a practice or in as much woven into the lifestyle as anybody else, that you're nonetheless very, very peripheral. And in those days when I experienced that distance and that we were really like second class or, you know, peripheral, I thought, well, that's because we are in Europe and we are far away. And what I have now through the many discussions or the many blogs and the many sharings of people, what I've learned is that even within the Dharma in the U.S., people felt the same. And to me, that breaks my heart, you know, because... Mm -hmm. If other people see that you're right at the center, you know, they call them the A-listers, but the A-listers don't feel they're the A-listers. I mean, that's mm. fucked up, right? Yeah. That, that is, the pain body of that is massive. And the obfuscation and having to hide it and sweep it under the carpet and, you know, put your face in place and your turban in place, the pressure to do that is massive. And that psychic energy that is used in order to build yourself up and buoy yourself up into being this persona that should be used for your own healing and for your own like true liberation and to set you free, you know, and to, to stand in your own in your own right and stand in your own uh, strength and your own natural God-given whatever, you know. So the words are there that says that we must be this, but the protocols are not. And that is the thing that I find very, very, very bothersome. So in years gone by, I kind of felt that my gaze was turned towards the U.S. and what is happen happening there. But I have seen ugh, over many years now that the focus there is not my authority, is not my homies, is not my background, not my spiritual family. And I am very, very little interested because I have, except for a few people, um, experienced a lot of shallow, shallowness and a lot of basking. And I find that deceitful. And on a spiritual path, you're not deceitful. You know, you you actually have um, the, the brief, you have the honor, you have the need to be, to be honest. And honesty means that you dig deep and you actually unplug whatever it is that ails you and you don't cover it. You know, like when Yogi Bajin used to say, you know, like a donkey is a donkey. It doesn't matter if you put gold leaf on him or, you know, a pile of crap is a pile of crap. If you put gold leaf on it, doesn't make it better. These things, if we actually lived them, you know, we'd be, we'd be, we, we would do good, you know. It's not that it's not in the teachings, but there's a certain culture that prevents that and makes people collectively not do that. So, um, speak to that culture a little more. Speak to the institutional aspect I know that you still, you know, practice and teach and you're finding your way to be able to move forward. And yet I also know you have a stance in the importance as an organization to really look at the, the, the embedded white, white lens of things as well as... So what Yogi Bhajan, thanks yeah. Green Sean, what Yogi Bhajan used to say in the past is that when you're a Singh Saab, Sadarni Saab, and Mukha Singh Saab, Mukha Sadarni Saab, the higher you rise the more you must bow, you must touch the dust of the dust of the feet of the people, right? Okay, fine. Those are words. Do you see that in the people, you know? And even the people who serve and even serve like like as seva and, and uh, for mohalla, as we say here, you know, like they still have a big wig, yeah? Because there's something in the culture that makes you hold that special status. And 
so the payoff that you get by privilege is actually very high and it hasn't been addressed or it's not being addressed in a constructive way. So what I did a couple of years ago, and I did it twice, I did it, did it one year after the other. We have a facilitator here, you know, we have people who work in, in race studies and who, who work to dismantle the, the privilege. And it is very, very creative and it's very effective and it uses alternative to violence. And it works with uh, young people who are, um, you know, with endangered youth and to find ways to to not go into that. And it works with gender-based violence and things like that. So it's incredibly fruitful programs that have been done around many, many times over. And these people are mediators and they're professionals and they know what they're doing. So I suggested to the CEO of Solstice, please, can you help bring this lady over and we can do an all camp process that allows yeah. people to become aware of privilege. And when you are aware of what your privilege is, you know, the congruent response is not to run away and hide your face in shame. The congruent response is to talk to a person who has less privilege and to say, how is that for you? And a competent facilitator can easily facilitate that. Yeah. Those conversations. What, what year she was didn't this? even respond. This was um, 2018, 2016, during all this time where, where we were having this conversation with this person who was so hostile. Right. I mean, I remember one one conversation um, where three very prominent teachers phoned me and completely crapped me out and said, Pritam Hari, you 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 cannot take uh, this person that this person is is better than you or something like that. I mean, an unbelievable way of communicating. It was bizarre. It was bordering on the bizarre. Anyways, you had suggested doing an anti-racist, like having them bring in an anti-racist facilitator. The same person, you know, one of the person who completely came down on me like a ton of bricks. I mean, how dare she? She know she she doesn't she doesn't know me. She knows me by sight. She doesn't know me. You know, she has no no right to crap me out like that. You know, I mean, with mm. all respect. Anyways, that lady is a CEO of Solstice. She's still in that position. She's a figurehead, wow. and I recommend to her this process. She doesn't even bother to respond. Wow. You know, there is zero interest. There's zero interest in doing these processes that highlights to us our internalized and buried racism. There is no interest in it. And the long and the short of it is since 2002 and, you know, the olive branch and all these processes and, you know, the very moderate um, culture council and, and all of that, they, they are moderates and they're trying to bring about change. But there is so much marketing spin that goes out that is again window dressing have you mm. noticed that since 2020 you know every pamphlet has a person of color on it it was never yes. like that before and they're just doing as window dressing and to me it is actually vile i think it is so disgraceful and so disrespectful um to to do that as a marketing approach you know they're nice posters and they show people enjoying yoga and there's nothing wrong with it you know i i love these visuals also but they are not honest and they are not true. The, the people have not done the work behind it. And um, so- window, window dressing is a great word, you know, to, to since 2020 to, you know, to paint 
to paint your website with people of color and to start using trauma language when what's being exposed is very, very deep and dark roots of predatory abuse, both racially, <laughs> sexually, financially, psychologically. And that hasn't been addressed, right? So it's like window dressing without actually looking at the institutional culture that has been embedded into these institutions. Yeah, and um, the sense I have there is a very tensile sort of web of, of something that is holding itself through the thoughts and the, the feelings of the people that are not being aired and expressed. There is something that feels very skewered in this collective pain body and it hasn't settled and it hasn't exploded enough. And I feel some sense of compassion even vis-a-vis -vis the people who are trying to correct this because the way they're going about it is uh, futile. Explain more. For me, the way I see it is there needs to be a level of honesty, of sharing how you feel, what your experiences are, maybe a level of owning up, a level of regret, a level of saying, you know, I didn't realize that um, I also, in the way I pursued this culture, um, took away the voice of other people, you know, there needs to be some talks around that where people say, I, I, I was part of this, that somebody felt ostracized and that they weren't given a voice and that they walked away with a lot of pain. And I'm sorry that I didn't see this earlier. You need that there needs to be conversations around that. And that can help to deconstruct some of the inherent shame, blame transferal and dishonesty that exists in the Dharma. And the fact that people need to keep putting up their facade um, around this. And until and unless we do that, um, we cannot properly resurrect. We will resurrect. You know, I think that um, to me, you know, other people disagree. <laughs> I mean, when they talk about the different people, some people run away, other people are in harm calculus and other people are deniers. And I'm kind of in the harm calculus group, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> and and I I'm I'm okay to to be there while keeping my mind open to and I long to see what I long to see in a kind of sense of deconstruction and in something rising in me. You know, I um have a lot of regard for the teachings of Kundalini Yoga. I practice them. I practice with some moderation, but when I practice I practice also very intensely. So, you know, I I, I see the effect within myself and I don't see that I'm, I'm aware of the fact that my spiritual growth, if you call it that, is by the grace of the infinite. So, you know, I have to also reconcile with where I'm at, you know, whatever that is, whether that is good or bad or somewhere in the middle. So and, and help me I or help us know what, how, if any, did your relationship with Yogi Bhajan change once you read the ABAOB report or actually started hearing that he wasn't just having affairs per se. And I don't know how much you had your pulse on that, but um, but that he was actually like really harmfully abusing, sadistically abusing the women that were in his in his care in his caretaking positions. 
in um, terms of, especially because you had had this incident that did go unaddressed in your own ashram. And so I don't know, did it, did it spin you into like new levels of reconciling that hadn't been? When this all came out, I, I tried to sort of acid test it with my own perception of him. And um, I did not see that he was inappropriate, like sexually inappropriate with people. I thought that he was sometimes confrontational and slightly on the edge of um, not honoring boundaries, but I thought that he had the capacity as a spiritual teacher to do that. So when when all of that came out, I was, um, you know, I went through disbelief and anger and great sadness and um, removing all the pictures, not being able to relate with him, not being able to see him. And I went out to seek conversations with a number of people to be able to somehow confront myself enough with it so that I would understand this reaction people who I knew. Mm. And where I'm at with that now is that I remain open to hear people and their experiences. And I try and be big enough to hold a candle for their experience. Um, as regards him, I think I drew a line as to how I experienced him in the past. So I have a memory of my beautiful, mem I have a memory of the beautiful events with him and I keep them somewhere there in the past, kind of like in a, in a shrine of sorts. Mm -hmm. And at this stage now, I have detached somewhat from him as my spiritual teacher. And on that, when you quote him, do you feel it's like a call within yourself, but also those within the institutional leadership positions to live what it is they say that they stand for? Is that what a quote like that is? It's like when he says this, but where does that show up in the institution and how it's run? Something of that nature? What I would like to see, Gurunishan, is that somehow some part of the teachings that we as a collective loved or abided by, that that gets um, reconsidered and re-understood. You know, I teach and I teach a train and I do level one and level two. And we discuss in every course, we discuss uh, what has happened mm. and how may we relate with the teachings, you know, in that context. Yes. So, you know, as you know, a lot of people come to the yoga and they love the yoga and they love the teachings and they don't have the relationship or the need for the relationship with the teacher. A lot of people even, you know, many years beyond his passing have said, uh, you know, I struggle to look at the videos. Um, sometimes we read the stuff and we say, what jumps out of you, out at you? What is a quote here that you can work with? How would you interpret that? So we try and find a way that is 
not here, not not there. You know, it's nitty nitty. It's not this, not that. It's like, what is in it for you? Can you take something up from this? Is there something of importance? And what I would like to um, do there for myself is that I want to find some level um, where I can distill or pull out some goodness from it, because. Um, I've come to realize, and that sounds really talky, you know, but I have come to realize I'm 60, I'm 63, mm-hmm. that um, life is not all good and bad. You know, there is sort of like something to be distilled out of everything. You know, I live on a farm, we make compost. So there is some part of goodness that arises from that. And um, without wanting to um, sentimentalize it in any ways, yeah, I have a sense that some aspects of it can be integrated and used but I stand back from you know a generalized whitewashing or holy making and I don't teach that way I don't use the yoga to override an issue um you know the yoga is going to be the the sensory or the somatic experience in some ways yeah sitting with it and then there's other process that allows you to uh, mentally and emotionally uh, incorporate and and process something so I don't teach at all the technology to override anything because I think it's ultimately brutal and I think it is it is stupid making you know I have no other words for it and I won't do it you know I'll, I'll completely I'll completely step away from that yeah and, but and I, I want to I want to I find and just merit say... in a spiritual path and it's in the spiritual practice as well because spirit is Spirit is ultimately a reality that's that's invisible, but that's totally there. And I, you know, I continue with my spiritual journey. Sorry, I interrupted you there. Go no, ahead. no, I was just going to say so well said. And I want to add that that the path you're walking, the 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 reconciling your your path forward. Each of us have to do this within our own selves, right? Within our own past, present, and ways of moving forward but even for you to bring forth and cut through the silence culture and to bring elements of transparency that you're running a teacher training and you're bringing up what has taken place in the last two years not just kind of pushing it aside removing the name of him and just pretending that the teachings are wonderful as opposed to how within this body of work could so much silence happen? How could this happen? Like to even use that as a part of curriculum changes the history of how this culture has been disseminated. Completely. And I I believe that wisdom teachings cannot be abused, uh, you know, to abuse, to abuse people. And I want to tell you something else, Gunishan. I mean, um, the way Yogi Bhajan would be often very forceful, you know, poke, provoke, confront, elevate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, was often, first of all, it was a bit Russian roulette, you know, like was was this thing going to work out or not? Secondly, it was often um, rude and brutal. Okay. Thirdly, there were a lot of people who emulated that. So. That's right. Um, you know, we and have their teacher bully... persona was brutal. Absolutely. Oh my God, we have a bully culture in this dharma that is yes. um, that's unparalleled. And you know what? I have never been able to do that. I have never been able to do it in all these decades. And I thought I was a wuss. 
I thought I, I don't I don't have this together, but I never did it. And everything that has happened so far has confirmed in me to be impeccable with how you approach people. You know, it's a statement of service, it's a statement of sensitivity, it's a way to match the person, to to meet them where they're at and to see how you can serve them. And I must say, you know, to Yogi Bhajan's credit, he did also emulate those parts for me. Like in the 80s, I was an administrator. And even when I went to the US and I did those, did those transcribing jobs, I was an administrator and I loved administering, you know, being an admin person. Because if you are an admin person from the heart, it gives you an in and you understand and you can start weaving the field in a constructive way and network and you know who's who and what's what. Mm. But this thing of confronting people and shouting them down and shattering their egos, to me, that's, that is not only a bunch of bullshit, it is also very destructive. And on the once or twice, two times I have done that and people have run away pulling out their hair and I went, this doesn't work. This mm. is horrible. Perish the thought. I won't do it. You know, it's mm. toxic and I won't have that kind of metal you know, like like uh, entanglement with people. So, yeah, well done. What I'm well very said. big on at the moment <clears throat> these days is when we are teachers or have any kind of function where, where you stand out a little bit more, people look towards you, you actually have to step back a little bit more and lead from behind. This was one thing that, that Madiba Nelson Mandela said, you know, he was leading from behind. And... Um, what that means is that you have an awareness of the field and you try and see how the field, what the field means and how the field can can be nourished. Yeah. So in many ways, if you're now standing out, because if you're a teacher, and this is also, it's a big shadow identity for all of us collectively. Every teacher has a big shadow identity because when you are visible, then 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 you actually like all the energy rushes towards you and you gather gather this energy and then what do you do with this energy? You know, there is a, there is an underbelly and a shadow part to the teacher that is um, very big and it makes me also question. Um, it makes me question sometimes my identity as a teacher. So I try and break that up all the time because when you are a teacher and you gather all this energy, then what do you do with it? Does that just blow up and inflate your ego? Does that blow up your spiritual ego? You know, mm. it's it happens mm. automatically unless we are very incisive and decisive and ruthless in dismantling it. We have to break that down all the time and mm. be very, very aware of it. And um, when you go more into the thing of holding space in Sangat, then you don't have to say so much. You know, there's also the spiritual line that says, use the, minim the minimal uh, medicine that's used must be the best medicine. You know, like, okay, like I'm, I'm rambling a bit now, you know, because I'm on a roll. But what happens in, <laughs> what happens in spiritual circles, I see it a lot. The teacher makes the problem bigger, okay? And then rushes in to, to, to come with a fire extinguisher. And I find it pathetic, you know? I find it is completely wrong and it's deceitful. Don't make the problem bigger. Don't make a problem where there isn't one to then rush in and put out the fire. You know, like, please, you know, it's just, it's just a soap opera. And I see it a lot. And I see it a lot in yogic circles. And I, I would rather it wasn't like that. You know, I would rather that we find exactly where, 
when things are going well and when things are not going well that we have the skills to delve into uh, what's not working well without dramatizing it and then having to like numb it out again right mm -hmm. so you know this happens in spiritual circles generally but it also it's 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 a trademark of 3HO it's a, mm. it's a trademark it's a hallmark indeed indeed and having um started established and helped to grow the south african area and then having dealt with a number of incidences um where others were harmed and as a leader feeling responsible to to bring some truth and reconciliation to it especially being in a south african area where truth and reconciliation was a part of the language of how do we deal with a very complex past and so to be a part of a larger international organization where you were slowly starting to realize, huh, we, we don't have, we don't have real leadership helping us here. But this was like slow realizations. It sounded like, um, I, I would love for you to speak a little bit more into that in the sense of what you see in in leadership in the institutions in the orgs, as we say around the very complexity that we haven't heard enough of in the last two years of the built-in privilege, the built-in specialness that being a teacher, being a lead teacher, being a teacher trainer, being anybody in position, how, how it bolsters an underlying white privilege or sense of specialness. Yeah, so good, Nishan. What I observe now that there's a lot of teachers who still carry on teaching, but they're just not hanging out this mantle to the wind that says, uh, you know, Yogi Bhajan this and Yogi Bhajan that and Yogi Bhajan this and that. You know, people are more showing themselves without a turban on Facebook and things like that. And that's a testament to, to saying we're moderate, we're human. Okay. What they're not saying, they're not sharing their own process of um, how that goes through the shock and horror. You know how they go through the disappointment, how they go through 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 that whole drama. Um, I can parallel it to the process that people do when they own up to their racism, right? So the first part is, um, you know, outrage. What me? I'm not racist. I'm the least racist person that I know. You know, whatever. That complete denial. Then the next part is when people actually understand uh, how they have sequestered privilege and that this is an inherited privilege that exists for a long time then comes shock and horror people go oh my god i didn't know i'm so bad this is so horrible that's the part where normally black people do not want to be part of the conversation because now the white person you know gets all the kudos and you know has plenty of tears and maybe the black person will now even comfort uh, the white person who's having a meltdown black people yeah. should be spared that you know again it's all around the white person so when the person has now had this, this incredible regret and this uh, shame and blame and feeling guilty and feeling horrible, then there is a resurrection and the leveling that comes. And ultimately what a white person then does and uh, can be beholden to is to be an ally. We become allies. You know, we stand up for other people where there was less privilege. And this ultimately is a process that we can do. And each person can find uh, their area where they want to work most, you know, like we know that the second generation was um, was bereft and was actually um, abandoned in a way, you know, they were given hopes and promises, they were going to be the leaders, etc. And there was really nothing for them. And that is uh, a betrayal of an entire generation. Yeah. And some people 
seem to cope with it better and other people um, are very, very, very against anything that has been given to them and has disrupted families and hurt families and people don't talk to each other, etc. So this process should be done by the first gen. They need to go into that. And a lot of us are maybe at this stage now elderly, like we're in elderhood, and maybe people think, I don't need to do this anymore. Let me just live my older years out peacefully. Or maybe people are just numb or they're in vanilla beige, you know, they're in La La Land. They say, what does it matter? But it matters hugely. And I give you just, there are a million examples. I'll tell you one example. Um, Khalsa Council was always seen as something very important. And yes, there is younger people, but mostly I think it is a fraternity and sorority. Sorority? Sorority. sorority. Uh, a group of fuddy duddies, a group of elder people. They all pat each other on the shoulder and think that they've got, you know, the ethics and the moral high ground down pat, and they don't. But how do they not have that down? Like, for instance, a person passed, and then another person passed, and so And then these obituaries are written, and they are circulated to the entire world. And that's where I don't get it. Yes. You know, for the Khalsa Council, that's important. That was a peer and a friend and a brother and a sister. And, you know, we we pay them our respects, you know, and we say our call and whatever else. And we mention them in Ardas and we want them to go into such kind and on the arms of the infinite. For a small group and for the Sangha and for the family and for the, for the Khalsa Council, that's important. But who would get the idea of circulating this to the entire world? This person is not important to these other people. But the self-importance that these culture council people give themselves is mm. completely bizarre. Yeah. So that's that's uh, that's um, a blind spot that the person can't see until they have de deconstructed themselves. Secondly, all these people who engage lawyers and counseling outfits and this and that the and the other to help heal, they need to. Um, look at their own involvement and where they need healing and where they have regret and they need to be a little transparent around it and not be high and mighty. That high and mighty is um, the unaddressed privilege. So what I would look towards is that people have talking and sharing circles and that, that should be facilitated sharing circles and that should be the people who are office bearers. They need to um, talk to each other about and then they need to share with the community what they have realized. That's a very most fundamental step. You know, they cannot be so shielded, so wide, such perfect turbans, you know, such beautiful Adi Shakti pins and so, and just carry on as normal. It's brutal. That doesn't mm. work. You can see that they have not done the work and they are averse to it because if somebody else comes in and says, this is a process that can work and you don't even get a response. You know, then you know that the work is not being done. Mm -hmm. And until the work is not being done, there is a tension in the system and it's palpable. And, you know, for me, I have just gone completely cold vis-a-vis -vis those people. There is nothing they can tell me. They don't have any, there's, there's no sisterhood, brotherhood that I feel with them, unfortunately. So I go back into just, um, you know, working <laughs> with my spiritual life in some, in some way that feels congruent to me. And, and knowing that on some level I'm held and I'm guided and I'm doing the thing that initially inspired me. I find 
your language and your approach to your own process, um, healing and way forward is courageous and it's um, outspoken and it's complex. There's not anything simple about self-examining in this way. Thank you, Gerenshan. And I also want to say, you know, that I teach both here in South Africa and I teach in Austria and in the years gone by and the, you know, six, seven years ago, I taught a lot in the Gambia and Togo. Uh, I taught uh, level one in Burundi. Um, I teach very different demographics and people are very different. And I have done a level one in Austria and also two level twos at this stage. And and people are very different there. Um, they have a beautiful, beautiful, gentle discipline, impeccability. And we process in exactly the same way. We address in exactly the same way. You know, I, I like a very humane approach and I like a very honest approach. And I don't want bluster and, and, and bluff and, you know, because that flies in the face of a spiritual integrity. And um, I, I won't and I, I simply cannot. And I, I long for that to happen all over. And what I've noticed also, okay, so there's these office bearers, right? The office bearers. Yes. The people who've given the themselves titles. the authority of yes. being somehow spokesmen, spokeswomen, being the voice, etc. And they carry on with some sort of uh, airbrushing and photoshopping and, and whitewashing stuff. And a lot of people find that very dishonest and a lot of people... You know, we, we carry on attracting people into the Dharma because, yeah, I'll get to that in a moment. Then there's various teachers who go out on a limb and they do their own stuff. And they start connecting with other people and try and find their niche. And sanghas and people and friends and brothers and sisters with whom they have a shared language. So what I notice is that there's a lot of different little pods that um, operate and share with each other to a more or less degree of honesty. And I think there is merit to it because that's a coping mechanism, but I still don't think that it be, uh, benefits us and the Dharma as, as a whole. It doesn't, there's still something amiss because people are trying to find um, those groups with whom they have a resonance. And out, out of that, some, some new sort of sprouts come, yeah. But, you know, there's, there's one more thing that I want to say that I find also like worthy to ponder. Because we are an organization that teaches so much, a lot of our collective identity is tied up in teaching and how do you present to students? Yeah. So we still are attracting a lot of students collectively in the Dharma. Yeah. But you know, that means that we can pave the way and give these people advance credit of energy for a while until such time that that is not going to wash or hold anymore that mm. vessel will become leaky so if we as teachers need to be so together and so wonderful and so exemplary and so graceful and everything that we cannot um take care of our own shadow and and our own disabilities and our own brokenness then ultimately we will not be able to sustain the new people because what are they coming in for? They're just coming in for more of like false bravado, false bluster in the yoga world, which actually by all intents and purposes is also very, uh, very false. You know, there's a lot of mighty big egos walking around. 
And we're going to be doing the same. We're going to be creating the same unless we have the capacity to deeply self-reflect. And that's what I long for. Yeah. So from an organizational perspective, do you feel like the organizations, the, the people who run teacher training, the people like, I mean, from an institutional level, do you feel like that can happen within these orgs? If people are willing to, yes. You know, if, if they're willing to, because people becoming in position more, being willing to. Yeah, work. if they're willing to, it, it can happen because becoming more humble and owning up and going into your own sadness and grieving and anger and so even not just privately, but, you know, with other people um, doesn't take anything away from you. It makes you the the more holistic, more well-rounded person. You know, I I find it very, very puzzling. I have no words for it, that there is people out there who are in complete denial. How would you be in denial? You know, even even if the person who speaks of abuse was just telling a story, you know, like um, ask, ask yourself what would be the need to tell a story and not tell the truth, you know? Like mm -hmm. if somebody goes into complete denial, that's inhuman in some ways. You have to listen to the voices because just even people coming forward and telling their story is hugely courageous. Exactly, it is. What I hear you saying, Pratamari, is where's the humanity? <laughs> where's the humanity? You know, so let yourself get broken in the process of, of owning up and saying, I didn't know this and and me too and blah, blah, blah. You know, let yourself be, be on the floor, you know, mopping your tears with your hair, you know, whatever. You know, have, you know, holler and scream, you know, and have a, have a meltdown that is more honest than, than keeping, keeping it all together. Yeah, than keeping it neutral. I guess the question I have for you in that you're no spring chicken to this, when YB didn't create that space, when YB didn't instill that transparency, that honesty into the institutions, into his formidable legacy teachers, and yet you, you make, you've had incidences that have forced you to crack open and reconcile in certain ways, Others haven't, right? Others have been in this fold of of pretending even long after he passed. And so, yeah. how how is that possible when the actual institutions he built, and the formulas he instilled, and that he practiced, didn't include that honesty, that transparency, that feeling of the feelings? You see, we are not Yogi Bhajan, you know, so we can't ride on that particular kind of charisma. We have to be impeccable and we have to be really, really good and really humane, you know. Like, I mean, there were there were many good things about him and there were apparently many, many toxic things and we can't perpetuate a toxic culture. Mm -hmm. um, In the name of something healthy, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. um, something I was going to say. Oh, he, um, yeah, if we carry on with this bluster, it consumes our psychic energy that we could be using for, for, for true self-healing, you know, and consequently healing of the field. And dismantling, dismantling false identity so that a new identity gets to merge that's actually rooted in something versus in quicksand. Yeah. And then, you know, you know what, we'll just be people, you know, we don't have to be big wigs. We don't have to have importance. You know, yes. that's, that's such a false uh, scenario as well. Like, you know, who, who gives stuff, you know, like really we are just human beings and we don't have to be 
uh, important and have a particular position to me that's overrated. So um, I'm I'm quite big on that um, as well. You know, I prefer that teaching style where the where the person can teach through a kind word or through silence or through reaching out in a humane way or something, you know, so that our web as people becomes more informed through kindness and humanity yeah. than through posturing. And it is ultimately a horizontal state that we have with each other, not a vertical one. You know? Right, not a not a pedestaled one. Correct. And, oh yeah, I, I remember what I wanted to say. Um, by the way, I feel um, very blessed that somehow that didn't work here in South Africa. This vertical thing didn't work. And I'm very indebted to my peers who very compassionately reflected that to me, you know, mm. that the verticality is, is, is passé. It's overrated. It's not Aquarian. And I very, very much stand by that. And why do we still have groups anywhere where people just are with others of a similar mindset because of this confirmation bias? You know, you yeah. seek the people who's not going to challenge what you yourself think, All right? Mm. We have our own mental, emotional algorithms. We draw to ourselves the people who think as we do, and then we keep patting each other on the shoulder. And then what you do, Gurinishan, and of course that's a beautiful thing and nothing wrong with it, but then we go and we've got healing circles and we've got chanting circles and we do another two and a half hour of this and that, and we have kirtan and we have prashad and langa, and it's so cozy and so wonderful. And that also creates this confirmation bias so that we can keep putting a layer of niceness and holiness on it without addressing. And it's not going to stand us in good stead. It's not going to fly. It's not going to work. It's not going to work, ultimately. The deeper mm. process needs to happen, you know, without and that becoming expedient and used. Mm. It gets used in order to not address what's real. And that is a shame and that is a, a misuse of the beauty of of you know even the sigdama practices the bani the curtain you know and all of that i got tingles that is so well said mm. it is so well said that the very thing that bolsters the very teaching that we use whether it's a spiritual this or whatever and we put that out to the world that then becomes another shield to then see the violation that we are doing by not self-examining. And that's mm -hmm. such a good example by global healing, sending healing through Ramadasa. Like it's like using this great practice ish, yeah. right? it, but, but using that to bolster a form of projected humanity that's yeah. not actually rooted in the real humanity of the person that is next to you getting blasphemed by a teacher in the name of, their upliftment, you know, exactly, and exactly, and I want to pause on that again to say, I'm curious of your thoughts on this. Not all teachers modeled the YB uh, beat the person up verbally ego because they didn't have that bully in them. I think you were an example. So when you tried, it didn't work, and so you allowed yourself to learn from from your students that were then saying, oh no, that, you can't teach like that. I'm not going to listen. But not all teachers operated that way. And so one of the things that's occurred to me is that I feel like within the Dharma, 
that kind of comparison of types of teachers was used as a coping mechanism to not see what was in plain sight by just saying, oh, well, I wouldn't follow that type, but I'm this type of teacher. You know, the people who were more bullish, they, they actually had more powerful standing. And to me, exactly. walking up the wrong tree, you know, that's, it's, it's, not, it's not spirituality. It was, it's strong, strong arm tactics. And they ultimately, um, the way they knock on in the community creates a kind of cruelty that um, we should not have. We don't need, we don't want. It's not spiritual, you know, spiritual is something else. And but they were emulating their teacher. They were emulating their teacher and they were just acting out of normal human nature. You know, I mean, mm. I mean, I, um, I, I, I ran a business for a long time and I dealt with staff for a long time, you know, through my shop. I mean, I did the yoga, but I also was in the shop. And so, so I dealt a lot with staff and I had very, very unaddressed anger issues. And my style was always, <laughs> I like flip out because, you know, I'm like very, like because this wasn't clean and that wasn't done properly and after the go to the person i said i'm so sorry i'm so sorry i blasted you you know and eventually i went to myself jeez you're just a nutcase you know you freak out on people and then you always say sorry mm. so i went like damn i have to address i have to address all this stuff that i'm angry against yeah and you know anger is is around where where um boundaries were were not honored and and where I didn't self-care or care for others or where I, where I didn't respect others or where I didn't respect myself or mm. where I felt I wasn't respected. So my backlog of anger was was massive around that. And when I started clearing like this event and that event and that event, like I started pulling them up out of my psyche. So I wasn't, you know, always having like this, this, this volcano that was wanting to erupt because I had a lot of historical... Um, memories that had been stuffed down and when they're stuffed down they become exponential yeah right they become stronger still so you know my way of like blasting people was i always go afterwards and say i'm so sorry i'm so sorry you know <laughs> this, this was this was not cool so i thought man you know like just let me address it you know in myself because i couldn't pull this off and maybe it's more like the culture of patriarchy that some of the men felt that they could do this uh, very forceful behavior but it's actually just a pathology of human nature you know there's nothing spiritual about it so now if we then go into sangat and we have kirtan and things like that it can come out of the heart and devotion but let all the other conversations happen and if something went wrong let it be addressed and if somebody wasn't respected let that person speak and let that person be heard and mm. let that person get justice you know i mean that's the kind of way how we can build Sangat more solidly. There has to be a culture of um, transparency. And your voice is out welcome. from the silence. Yeah, out from the silence. Your voice is welcome. You know, yes. and I'm not going to shame you and I'm not going to blame shift and I'm not going to obfuscate. And I'm not going to say, oh, no, 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 no. He didn't mean that. You must have misunderstood. Right. Gaslighting. Right. No, yes. it's not going to be that culture. It's going to be the culture of let me build more courage so I can be very honest at all times mm. and, and not be silenced. And if somebody wants to like silence a person who speaks up, then, then you need to be able to say, listen here, you know, until those things have all been spoken about, there isn't going to be peace in the hood. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. From what I'm hearing, it takes a tremendous amount of unlearning of patterned behavior that Kriyacho and the Dharma has very instilled as a part of the teacher persona. Completely. And so the complexity of actually unwinding this, I love what you're saying in that it's not just a personal process. It's actually a collective one. It's something we have to do publicly and in a social atmosphere because this isn't just something that happened in our own interior. It happened in our interior and in the public atmosphere in which we've called community. We have to publicly bow our head, you know, like the things that also happened here. I had um, unwillingly, unwittingly a hand in it, you know, because I was numbed out. I didn't see what was happening in front of my eyes, you know, mm. and I have humbled myself in that process, um, you know, where I, through my position, um, created a distortion in the system and an injustice in the system. Mm. Mm. So, you know, if we do that work, then um, something heart-centered and healing and very beautiful can come about. You know, I still have, this is still my spiritual home mm. and I'm indebted to it. Um, and I, will, I, I don't practice in a way where I constantly um, invalidate myself. You know, I practice in a way that feels commensurate with my energy and my day and how I speak to God within myself, etc. You know, it feels commensurate with where I'm at. I'm not in a self-talk where I invalidate. So yes. it feels at peace and my honor goes out to any person who um, approaches the spiritual path with a sense of self-investigation and and softness you know like this thing of dramatizing and then coming in you know as a savior to me leaves a very bad taste in my mouth and i see it a lot and if a person doesn't do that it's it's good you know build yourself up to be um um in touch with your strength and know what you can deliver and know what you when you need to step back to self-care so true so true. I find that so much of what you're speaking to in your own personal process on your own spiritual path, it's reminding me that so many of us have a lot to learn from simply, although it's not simple at all, um, tuning into the anti-racist process. That's going to be a guiding, um, that can lead the way for us to, to start it's unpacking not- some of the the stupid stuff that we have taken on our shoulders, some of the collective beliefs. And you know what, I I go back to that. Even if you step away from it a little bit, unless you properly dismantle it, Mm. you know, you'll still silently project it. And that will also not fly, you know? So the way the processes of of, uh, dismantling racism like there's this author, what's her name? Uh, she's got an Italian name, but she talks. To, she wrote a book on white privilege. She actually coined that uh, that term. Yeah, white fragility. Robin uh, D'Angelo. Uh, exactly. She was here two years ago. Yeah, and uh, I I went to her um, course that she held at Stellenbosch University. She she came over to South Africa, and 
um, lots of groups who do this completely valuable work. So the way we address racism, that same protocol with a little bit of tweaking we can use to address our own um, falsely buoyed up, falsely keyed up self-awareness. And when <laughs> we do that, then we'll get to the to the true essence of what the spiritual work is. I mean, I humbly believe that. Yeah, I can't, I can't agree more. And, um, you know, it's only been in the last two years that I've been able to pierce false identities around being another, around being a white woman that grew up in an Indian culture, which then didn't identify as a white woman because I grew up as an other. And that's yeah. complex because I am a white woman. And, yeah. and so it's, a, it goes on to how we don't see ourselves right because yeah. we're living persona we're living holy concepts instead of concretizing holiness into the whole person yeah right and seeing you know, because we wear an indian garb yes and we we actually sometimes fool ourselves that we're more indian than we're white and we're not you know we're, we're not just, it's i a mean lie. talk to indians you know yeah I mean, some of them love us and some say a big, fat fucking joke, you know? Sorry, excuse my French. It, but, no, it's important, um, though, that we're seeing the reality of us, not the yeah. bolstered up persona of us. And and it's the same thing when it comes to consciousness, awareness, holiness, um, compassion. Are you really, right? Are we really? Or are we just using fluffy words to add to a persona or are we actually acting day to day in a way that's humane that's you true I mean? and you know Guru Shan, the worst part is that um many of us when um many I, i've seen that in the dharma a lot that the 3ho Sikhs actually are quite biased towards punjabi folk you know and horribly um, biased horribly racist yeah. And a built-in kind of white exceptionalism around, I need to protect the what my white sisters in India from the brown Indians. Well, I mean, you know, that, that part, uh, it has merit, you know. I mean, the, the, the kids at school, when they had jalousies and things, the boys would be on the outside and the girls at the center so they wouldn't get groped, you know. I mean, there is, you know, sexual transgressions in India that are, um, that are quite quite endemic and they're insidious you know but 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 the bias that our dharma has on some level vis-a-vis punjabis i mean except for many 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 ex exceptions there are a lot of people to whom that doesn't apply but there is a lot of people who have a huge bias towards it, which is also just like another thing that is just so off you know it doesn't go yeah it's true um I want to encourage listeners to go back and listen to some of the epiphanies I had on, on this very topic back back in last September. Um, I think it was episode 39, and I talked about the, the Indian fetishing white women and white women in our Dharma fetishing, the Punjabi Indian holy Sikh, um, and how that's kind of built into our culture. And, and then from that, kind of the white exceptionalism of being othered, any of us who ever grew up feeling othered, whether it was Huddy Budgeon wearing his turban at Waldorf or me going to public school or any one of our other stories. The yeah. otherness is a real part of our sense of identity. And it yeah. takes our, it, 
our ability to see ourselves as white people clearly, right? And it doesn't, and like you said, the garb, the dress, the verbiage, just all of it. And it took me all these years to suddenly see for the first time, holy moly, a form of racism or sorry, a form of white supremacy is having the exceptional white story. Oh, I'm not racist because fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Because I was born a Sikh, because I was born outside of mainstream America, because my name is Guru Nishan, because, um, and we all have that. And I think that what you've really brought up on this episode so well is that subscribing to a teaching and living it, subscribing as a spiritual person and living as a spiritual person, you know, there's a, a red sea between the two. And within that requires a level of honesty and, and transparency and self-examination. Mm-hmm. That was powerful. Thank you, Guru Nishan. <laughs> mm, thank you. Thank you. Um, before we pivot towards our end here, is there anything last that you want to say? I know that um, we've been in communication since 2020 and and it's again been of such a privilege to be circled back around into each other's orbit but watching your process watching it from a distance hearing your voice um watching your own dismantling um just anything last that you want to bring to this episode before you wrap up You know, you have grown up in 3HO and um, you were born into 3HO and um, (laughs) you even have your beautiful name that you were given at birth, which I think is wonderful. I feel because, you know, I was like so young when I started in 3HO, I feel that this has been my whole life. And even though I've kind of stepped away from the orgs, I I hold that collective in prayer, you know? So it's funny, like on a personal level, I need to create some boundaries so that I can pursue how I continue to walk somehow in, in, this, in this journey, in this dialogue with God within myself, but on another level, I try and hold that in my prayer. And Mm -hmm. that feels like the best I can do. And it feels um, like the most peaceful thing to do. So that's where I am at the moment. And a song I actually sometimes play in class is this one that uh, I chose for the session, which is a good job by Alicia Keys. <laughs> a good job. Okay, I've never heard it, so I'm excited to play it here. No, it's a brilliant one. She she composed it at the beginning of, of lockdown, and it's about all those emergency workers. But it's it's about it's about us, you know. You can say we're we're, we're doing an okay job, you know. It goes like it matters. You matter. You matter. You, you matter. You know. So. Mm. so so tell us about your present day. Um, your son, your husband, the the land you're you're working on. Tell us where you're at. Today. Well, I'm a I'm a grand now, right? I mean, Hari Bhajan and his love. They're getting married in a month or so. They have this beautiful little baby boy, two and a half. 
a month old and yeah, we're in this intentional community. It's 100 um, hectares and I live in a mini house um, that Harbhajan has built and he's mostly here and I go and travel and do my thing. <laughs> and we also run events here and one can come and visit. We have an Airbnb and we also host, we also rent the place out for events and we are um, a bunch of yogis, non-yogis. So it is a, a rather diverse community, but we are sort of centered around the nature conservation and also being connected with people in the village. I'm building a recycling project uh, in the in the informal settlement in my area. And Where are you? You're not in Johannesburg, right? Where are you? Oh, I moved 12 years ago here to the countryside in Robertson in the Western Cape, and it's a 160k northeast from Cape, Cape Town. Okay. Well, congratulations to your son. We um, we celebrate him and his new wife coming up and baby and hugs to Harbudgeon and to the land. And I look forward to coming to visit. Absolutely. I can't wait. It would be wonderful if you came, Gurnishan. It's truly going to be a privilege. I, I, I really look forward to it. Um, <clears throat> I want to, before we transition to Pritam's song, I want to just ask all of us to hold in our hearts and to take a moment of silence to really honor the women that were abused um, and never got a voice it and have never been heard for it. And not just throughout the entire Dharma, but specifically there in South Africa, um, there's a level of pain that when I heard about it, the close proximity to me being there, the aftermath of it, and then what it has uh, caused over the years in terms of undealt with unmetabolized pain, um, unmetabolized, undealt with, unacknowledged hurt. And it only amplifies the original abuse. So we want you to know, ladies, that we feel you and we honor you. And we do not stay silent on your behalf. And Pritam, I honor your courage to find a way through it, to not just bypass it, to not um, make excuses for it, but to dig in to pick up a shovel and dig in no matter how long it's taken to fully unearth it. Thank you so much, Gurinshan, for the time and for asking questions and for being there, like really with your every fiber. It's truly an honor. It's truly an honor. You know, I, I feel like a part of my child, child, my children inside got frozen in time by the silence culture, by the fact that there were things happening in plain sight and adults around me pretended it wasn't happening. Absolutely. It's kind of like being a child and thinking hide and seek is covering your own eyes. Yeah. But you're not hiding anything, right? You're just covering your ability to see it. And yeah. that's, you know, the cape or the, the layer that's being shed off of me through this process of the podcast is 
bringing space to voice the things that have never been voiceable in our culture. Yeah. And there is And that's the thing that you keep doing, you know, like keep pulling off those those layers, you know. Well, because there's layers we can't access until something else has come off. And so you can't you're not in charge of anyone else's process. You can only tend to your own. And it's why I love you, right? You've tended to your own. There's your process is like no one others. And that's all we can do. But it's when we bury things that we're no longer tending. We're not being stewards of the earth if we're pretending it's not happening. Yeah. So I think that's beautiful. And thank you for that. Um, We're going to go ahead and move forward. I'm going to share the song called Good Job by Alicia Keys. I just sent you a link for it. Um... No, no, I have it. I have it. Okay, great. And here we it's go. very beautiful. Gin <laughs> then makes all things go. And you've always been Your light in the dark. Smile in my face when we all know it's hard. There's no way to ever pay you back. Bless your heart, no one love you for that. Honest and selfless. I don't know if this helps it, but good job. You're doing a good job, a good job. You're doing a good job, don't get too down. The world needs you now. Know that you matter, 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 yeah. Doing a good job, a good job. You're doing a good job. Don't get too down. The world needs you now. Know that you matter, matter, matter. Yeah. Six in the morning. As always, we don't listen to the whole song because of copyright (laughs) issues, but don't forget you can go to the Spotify Uncomfortable Conversations playlist and listen to the entire song in full. Thank you for that. Pritamari, it's been such a uh, gift to have you on the podcast. Thank you for, um, for bringing your voice to this conversation. I know it's not easy and I know it's easier just to kind of focus on your own process and not bring it into public space, but bringing it here, I think I know is going to help a lot, a lot of people by listening. So thank you. Thank you so much. And I really look forward to speaking some more and to speak again. Absolutely. Well, this has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you'd like to contribute to this broadcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com forward slash uncomfortable conversations. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please share the podcast with someone that you know. Um, that hasn't heard the podcast or needs to hear this one. And uh, love and appreciate all of the listening support. Talk to you soon.